Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. report on this wednesday january 3rd 2018 we got a great show lined up for you tonight some last minute changes in the show lineup as we were scheduled to have peter chowka on at 7 30 to 8 but instead we're going to move him to tomorrow well he will be joining us for a whole hour from 8 to 9 and he's got a new piece up on hagman report that i urge everybody to read mueller's grand jury resembles a bernie sanders rally this is a really interesting story that i don't want to get too deep into because i'd like to hear uh, what peter has to say about this and we're going to hear again from him tomorrow but the title of the article mueller's grand jury resembles a bernie sanders rally the 20-member grand jury that was convened by special counsel robert mueller as part of his investigations of the Trump administration's possible collusion with the Russians appears to be a classic kangaroo court. This according to an unnamed witness who testified before the secret panel. The grand jury room looks like a Bernie Sanders rally. Maybe they found these jurors in central casting or at a Black Lives Matter rally in Berkeley, California. And we will, again, hear more from Peter Chalka tomorrow about this as it's a very interesting story that's making its rounds on the Internet. But again, go to HagmanReport.com if you have not bookmarked that site and check it daily as we put up a whole bunch of content, both original and curated, from across the uh, Internet each and every day. Boy, it was really uh, a day of fireworks in the White House. We have so much going on. Uh, Most of it seems to be a distraction, a media circus, if you will. We have... Um, what started out the day was the Trump tweet on North Korea and Kim Jong-un and his nuclear button and the size of his nuclear button. We're going to talk about that also. What is going on between Steve Bannon and Donald Trump? And does this really matter? We're going to dissect this a little bit as uh, it apparently... Uh, now, I've read the articles that are up on Drudge and that are circulating on the on the Internet... I've seen videos and commentary from both CNN and Fox News as well as Fox Business about the situation. And we're going to break this down a little bit uh, because this is it is um, a distraction, as I said. But the media, the media is all over the place with this. And we're going to talk about this a little bit and look back on what Steve Bannon said during his Charlie Rose interview after his departure in the White House about Donald Trump and about the political establishment. But first... We're going to talk about a Trump tweet that was issued yesterday at 8.05 p.m., which at first got a little bit of attention but has been overshadowed by the rest of the events that have been going on in D.C. today. This from USA Today. Trump to announce most dishonest and corrupt media awards next week. President Trump took his hostility to the media to a new level on Tuesday by announcing he would give awards next week to what he deems the most dishonest reporting of last year. This is what Donald Trump said in his tweet. I will be announcing the most dishonest and corrupt media awards of the year on Monday at 5 o'clock. Subjects will cover dishonesty and bad reporting, 
in various categories from the fake news media. Stay tuned. So that's going to be really interesting to see what he puts together there. There was even a question in the White House press briefing about the event. Will it be televised? Will the press be allowed to attend? And Sarah Huckabee Sanders wisely said that she doesn't want to ruin any of the surprises, but uh, they will keep the press informed. And so many people had taken issue to this, and again, it was overshadowed by what Trump said about North Korea and the nuclear button. But it's really funny to see, uh, you know, this is what we elected Trump for, to call out the fake news media, the lying news media, and, you know, he's really having some fun trolling the media. And this, as I've been saying, is one of the the main ways to get under the skin of the media. And if you want to see them completely, you know, uh, go off script and into the Twilight Zone, you view their reactions when they're called fake, when they're delegitimized, when their credibility is called into question. And this was no different. But the real uh, stories that dominated the headlines today, one was the Trump tweet about the nuclear button as North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, tweeted out that he had a nuclear button on his desk that he was ready to push at any time. So Trump tweeted back something along along the lines of, well, I have a, a much bigger button that actually works, and uh, I'm not afraid to use it, something along those lines. And the media went ballistic this morning, from CNN to MSNBC's Morning Joe. They're calling him demented, deranged, um, you know, mentally incompetent, they're using this analogy as an attack on his manhood, on the size of his hands, on and on and on, saying this is unpresidential. And is that a legitimate concern? Is this unpresidential? And Eric, uh, Tech Eric and I were talking before the broadcast, and he said, yes, it's unpresidential, but Trump is not your typical president at all. He was elected to be the uh, regular working class American's Representative, And even though, yes, he is a billionaire, he still is very much an everyday regular American with a big ego. And I think that's evident in a lot of his tweets. But the media reaction to the uh, Trump North Korea tweet was, was very funny to watch. But a more serious note, we have what has been going on with Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. Now, we're going to cover... Um, a few different angles of this, but apparently in a book written by a Tom Wolf, I believe his name is, he quoted Steve Bannon as saying, Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting at the White House was a nightmare, or I'm sorry, was treasonous, and that he should have notified the FBI and it was way out of line. Now, it's interesting to see these quotes come out. One, are they accurate? Is he being misquoted? We've seen the White House respond to this, saying that Steve Bannon had lost his mind after he was fired, that he is not connected to the presidential administration and has no influence. Donald Trump Jr. pushed back, saying, Bannon at times, uh, Bannon's time at the White House was a nightmare. Backstabbing, harassing, leaking, and lying. Uh, there was a lot of leaks when the Trump administration took office, and we, there was a lot of speculation about who was the leakers. Was it Rens Priebus? Was it Steve Bannon. His name really never got thrown into that ring. But you have to ask, was he a leaker? And I don't know. I don't know the uh, true nature of this, you know, feud that we are seeing uh, very in a very public way today by the media. But they are, I mean, 
they've blown this completely out of proportion. Some people say it's a distraction and has no bearing. Bannon's looking for influence. Others are saying that this reflects poorly on the president. This is more infighting and just another uh, indi- indicator of the way his administration is going. But either way, uh, does it have any bearing on his agenda moving forward? I don't believe so. And if you remember, after Bannon was fired, let go, or whatever happened with his departure from the White House, he gave an interview to Charlie Rose, a very detailed interview, which went on to cover a whole bunch of issues. But in the interview, the overall theme was that Bannon was there to go to bat for Donald Trump, to stand up for Donald Trump's populist, economic, nationalist agenda, and to help that agenda be implemented. He seemed to be, you know, working, even though not alongside Donald Trump anymore, on the same agenda. They seem to be on the same page. So what has changed from then till now? Has anything changed? Some people believe this is just a pure distraction that was created uh, in order to take focus away from something else that's happening. I don't know. It is yet to be seen. But we're going to talk about this uh, tonight and, you know, what has been going on in the White House and what is going on in the White House and what do we expect from Trump and the Trump administration in 2018. Uh, John Robertson is co-hosting the show with me today as uh, my father, Doug Hagman, is working on uh, an important story. And I think, John, you have a teaser of that story. Is that yes, correct? I do indeed. Uh, greetings and God's blessings to everyone. Happy New Year. And as always, what an honor, what a privilege to... Uh, join you this evening, Joe, on our second broadcast of 2018. Joe, I want to jump into the Bannon thing momentarily, but let's let's go back to the 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 Twitter gate. <laughs> uh, so I never thought I would see the day. This from the Express.co.uk. North Korea warning: Kim Jong Un could hit U.S. after another Donald Trump Twitter outburst. Apparently, according to the express.co.uk, we could in fact be, World War III could be hinging on Twitter. Well, that's what they say, but the, the express is a, one of the best left-leaning rags that you'll find on the internet. <laughs> and, um, you know, we'll, we'll come back to Kim Jong-un and the possible battle, uh, the Twitter battle and what that means as far as real life implications on our North Korean foreign policy. But first, let's, let's go back to what the situation from Trump and Steve Bannon uh, what's really going on there? Now, what Manon has said, according to this article from The Guardian, which is another unreliable source in my opinion, Donald Trump's former chief strategist Steve Bannon has described the Trump Tower meeting between the president's son and a group of Russians during the 2016 election campaign as treasonous and unpatriotic, according to a new book seen by The Guardian. Bannon, speaking to author Michael Wolf warned that the investigation into alleged collusion with the Kremlin will focus on money laundering and predicted they are going to crack Don Jr. like an egg on national TV. Fire and Fury, inside the Trump White House, reportedly based on more than 200 interviews with the president's inner circle and players in and around the administration, is one of the most eagerly awaited political books of the year. Wolf lifts the lid on a White House lurking from crisis to crisis amid warfare, even with some of Trump's closest allies expressing contempt for him. Okay, we've seen this so often, again and again, with Donna Brazile, uh, it was, is the, the first and foremost example that comes to mind. You know, we heard a whole, all these grumblings about her book, and, and uh, Omarosa is another one, uh, trying, after she left the White House saying, 
I have so much to tell uh, that so many people are going to want to hear. Of course, she's talking about a book deal, a book she wants to write about her time in the White House. Here we have another book, Donna Brazil. Remember her book dedicated to Seth Rich? We got snippets and excerpts saying, you know, that uh, Hillary Clinton was, you know, running all the DNC state primaries and funneling the money, or not the primaries, funneling the money from the state DNCs into her accounts and uh, doing all this wrongdoing. But when you get down to the book, they they left out, you know, the quotes before and after those ones that they threw out as teasers, where she went on to explain that she believed uh, Seth Rich was murdered by Russians, and it wasn't actually uh, a tell-all about what was really happening. It was just to sell books, and that's the same thing here. You have a book, Fire and Fury, the most anticipated uh, political book of the year, and you see this uh, these quotes be be dumped out as to gain attraction to this book where they're saying Steve Bannon describes the Trump Jr. meeting as treasonous and unpatriotic. Will uh, that be the beginning and end of the story when the book is released? What is being written on that same page before and after? That's my question, and has he been taken out of context? But either way, that's not important because we have a reaction from the White House as they are distancing themselves from Steve Bannon for reasons that could be uh, political, it could be for appearance's sake, or it could be genuine. We really don't know. And how big of a deal is it? I guess when you when it when we break it all down, what impact is this going to have on the Trump administration or America moving forward from here? And I don't think it's really going to have much at all. It's Steve Bannon's opinion, and as we learned before the show, the Trump meeting, uh, Trump Jr. meeting, happened two months before Steve Bannon ever joined the campaign. So how much does he really know about what happened there? And we can go into the details about what the meeting was actually about, but I just don't see anything but this media circus that might last for a day or two days and then die out, and then we're back to, you know, whatever Donald Trump decides to tweet out next. That's the big scandal. So um, I don't think it's as big a deal as, as the media wants to make it. You know, uh, Joe, I agree with you. And I think what we're seeing here, first of all, we have to remember that that many of our listeners and viewers, of course, know who Steve Bannon is, having come from the Navy and then later uh, Breitbart. But does the average American really even know who Steve Bannon is? That's one of the primary questions I have. And this is interesting. Uh, if you listen to uh, Joe and I on the Hagman Daily Show, we've been touching on this quite a bit lately. We've been breaking down and analyzing proper journalism, journalism 101, if you will, uh, as opposed to what we've uh, recently been terming hopeful journalism and, of course, the other side of the coin, fake news. Now, this is from the New York Times, and it's a very interesting piece written by Eileen Sullivan, Peter Baker, and Maggie Haberman. And what's interesting about it, Joe, I'll just read a couple of uh, brief uh, pieces from it. Trump breaks with Bannon, saying he has lost his mind. Now, as we go through this, use your discernment, because it's very interesting the way the New York Times framed this. Uh, Washington. President Trump essentially excommunicated his one-time chief strategist, Steve Bannon, from his political circle on Wednesday, excoriating him as a self-promoting exaggerator who had, quote, very little to do with our historic victory, end quote. And now he has, quote, lost his mind. So Joe went over this, but it, of course, in a written statement brimming with anger and resentment, Mr. Trump fired back at Mr. Bannon. We'll skip down a little bit, quote, Steve Bannon has nothing to do with me or my presidency, Mr. Trump said in the statement. When he was fired, he not only lost his job, he lost his mind, end quote. Skipping down again a little bit, and Joe, I'll pass it to you momentarily. Steve, quote, Steve pretends to be at war with the media. 
which he calls the opposition party. Yet he spent his time at the White House leaking false information, key point, to the media to make himself seem far more important than he was. End quote. Uh, President Trump added, quote, it is the only thing he does well. I mean, this is really a slam on, on, uh, Steve Bannon and perhaps to sell books. Mr. Bannon deserves some of this vitriol. Uh, Steve, well, he's not selling the book. It's the, uh, um, the other guy, Wolf. Let me pull it back uh, up. Yeah, here. Tom, Tom, or no, Tom Wolf is the, uh, the famous novelist. Yeah, uh, hold on here. I got it right here. But it is, uh, he's not selling the books. It's this other guy who's selling the books. But either way, it's, um, it's very curious as to uh, what, what, why this is coming all about now. And was this um, the intended? I mean, it, it, I believe it was intended, this quote putting being put out there. And it could be a completely mis- – they could be completely misquoting Bannon. But either way, it definitely has a uh, – it was done to sell books for sure. But well, not Bannon. He's not the one who's selling the books. Let's take a look at a little bit of what Steve Bannon said. Um in the book, Mr. Bannon was quoted suggesting that Donald Trump Jr., the future president's son, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, and Paul J. Manafort, and Joe, we're going to talk about him momentarily because he's really hit the news today as well. Uh, then Paul J. Manafort, then the campaign chairman, has been treasonous and unpatriotic for meeting with Russians, there it is, offering incriminating information on Hillary Clinton during a June 2016 meeting in Trump Tower. Joe, do you want to fill the listeners and viewers in on exactly what went uh, on, what the agenda of that meeting was. Well, yeah, there was, it was a multi-purpose agenda with the stated uh, reason as the meeting to talk about the McGinsky Act, which is a, some, the McGinsky Rule of Law and Accountability Act, which has something to do with Russia and abortion or abortions, uh, adoptions. But Apparently, from this meeting, the Russian lawyer Natasha, who also has connections to Fusion GPS, apparently offered Donald Trump Jr. some opposition research on Hillary Clinton that was never forthcoming. And that's what this on Bloomberg says, is that Bannon also called Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with the lawyer, in which he expected to receive damaging information on Trump's election opponent Hillary Clinton, treasonous and unpatriotic, according to The Guardian. Now, again, I... I believe to a large extent that this is being misquoted. Might not be, but either way, um, what they're saying that they're trying to, to place Donald Trump Jr. as doing some something wrong here and breaking the law in some way, which no law was broken, even if it was a meeting about opposition research. And if laws were broken, uh, you know, with the opposition research being received from a foreign source, then we should be seeing criminal investigations, indictments into, you know, the Fusion GPS Russian dossier. Uh, but again, I, I think this is a lot more, there's a lot more hype here than I think what the truth really is. But either way, the president has pushed back calling Steve Bannon's uh, attack on his son outrageous. And uh, what was the other one here? Outrageous and... Uh, completely false. That's what uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders told reporters at the briefing. Trump was furious, disgusted by Bannon's remarks about his son, calling the claims outrageous and completely false. But either way, it's front and center in the news, and it's probably going to be there for a day or two unless something else major happens. Now, uh, that word treason is kind of... To me, there's something wrong with this. Um, I I have a hard time believing Bannon seriously is is suggesting that it's treasonous 
he was either misquoted or I believe it could he could have been being sarcastic. Who knows at this point, but does it really matter? I don't believe it does, except to the rabid news media as they look for every and any excuse to paint Trump in a bad light. And from the uh, amount of turnover that we've seen through this administration and some of the, uh, you know, Trump tweets and, and, and issues and conflicts like this, they want to make the presidency look as uh, unstable as possible. And this does not help the president's cause, at least in the battle of the PR. So if this is just some kind of grand distraction designed by Trump, as some are alleging, it's a pretty bad distraction, I would say, and you could have used much better terms and a much better topic of distraction than Russians and treason. So I find a hard time to believe this is all some ruse by Donald Trump uh, to carry out some other agenda that just doesn't make sense to me, at least. So I agree with you're you. muted, buddy. <laughs> it's just one switch. Hopefully I'll get it right here. No, I agree with you. You know, this is starting to feel day in and day out like... Uh, solutions looking for problems like reaction when there was really nothing to react to per se and certainly when you use a term like treasonous you need to be careful with terms like that it's it's I always think of Nazis, you know, Nazism. People use it, they so overuse it that pretty soon the word fails to have meaning. And, of course, Doug is always very adamant about using the proper word uh, in its proper way. But uh, when we look at Paul Manafort, this is interesting. Uh, Paul Manafort sues Mueller, Robert Mueller, challenging scope of Russia investigation. This from The Hill, thehill.com. Former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort is suing the Department of Justice and Special Counsel Robert Mueller in an attempt to kneecap the federal probe into alleged coordination between the campaign and Russia during the 2016 election. Uh, it goes on to say, in a court filing on Wednesday, lawyers for Manafort argue that the order establishing Mueller's investigation is overly broad and not permitted under Justice Department regulations. Joe? Yeah, and we're going to get into that. Uh, on the other side after this break, because that's a very interesting story and it deserves more than just a few minutes' time. But I was just re-looking over this uh, Steve Bannon interview with Charlie Rose, because if you want, if you, re I have not went back and watched the interview yet, but I know they spent a significant amount of time during this interview talking uh, about a few things. One of those things being the Robert Mueller investigation, where Steve Bannon said to Charlie Rose, "It's a waste of time. There's nothing there." You'll see when the investigation is finished. And you'd think if he was going to say something along the lines of Donald Trump is, Jr. was treasonous in his meeting, that he had plenty of opportunity to get all the publicity in the world saying it there on Charlie Rose. So is this a personal beef? Is this something more than that? We don't know. Uh, or is this just the, the bad optics from a misquote that we see reactionary um, emotional responses to? We we don't know, but it will definitely, uh, hopefully, come out in the next few days, and especially when the book's published, we'll have the whole story as to in what context he was making these quotes with, uh, because I, I believe that is um, that there is a lot more here, or we're not being told the the full story at least. But it does look bad, and um, the media is having a field day with it, which uh, they do with with just about everything, and it is as expected with the media. Speaking of the media, I want to cover this just before the break, and then we got some good stuff on the other side. We're going to talk about that Paul Manafort uh, suing Robert Mueller 
because uh, of a number of reasons. One, the scope of the investigation is way off course, and that's what the main argument of the lawsuit is. Also, we're going to talk about why Chelsea Clinton had to come out today and deny that she worships Satan. That is a really interesting story. And the Winter Storm, I want to talk about this a little bit, Winter Storm Grayson, because I know most people on the East Coast remember Superstorm Sandy that we saw just a few years ago. Well, they are saying, they, the, the weather forecasters and meteorologists, are saying that Winter Storm Grayson is, uh, it's a, they call it a bomb, a winter bomb. It's going to bring huge, heavy, damaging winds, snow, and blizzard conditions to New England, all the way from, uh, you know, Virginia up to Maine. And we saw today that there was snow in Florida for the first time in 28 years in Tallahassee. And I talked to my friend who lives in Orlando, and it was 36 degrees in Orlando when I talked to him or, or texted him earlier today, probably around 2 o'clock. And he said it was absolutely uh, freezing there, and he doesn't remember the last time it was that cold. But very interesting. And one of the things that makes this very interesting is they're they're um, forecasting that the pressure of this storm is going to be as low or lower than the pressure for Superstorm Sandy. And that storm caused billions of dollars of damage. Now, this is a winter storm more so than a hurricane-type uh, storm. But we're going to talk about what, what it is that the uh, meteorologist NOAA and others are uh, calling for because this is a, a crazy weather event that we are going to see over the next few days that's going to be affecting most of the country, much like the cold. I've been following these chill maps that they've had on Drudge for the last four or five days. The maps of the United States showing the temperatures and just about, I don't know, four-fifths of the United States is 30 degrees uh, or lower, and that extends down into Florida, down into Texas and all throughout the South. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And it's putting a strain on the power grid. There are reports that the uh, cold is really putting strains on power grids, forcing some of them to go to backup generators and to try to uh, hurry up and reinforce and patch up some things where there are holes because it is putting a huge strain uh, with everybody running their furnaces and space heaters and whatnot. But how long will that last? We'll get into that and much more on the other side. You're listening to this Wednesday edition of the Hagman Report. We'll be right back. Wednesday edition of the Hagman Report. We got this segment. We're going to get into a bunch of news, and then we're going to be joined next hour by Laura Loomer, and then in hour three by John Haller, which is going to be really great. Yeah, I just want to. Hey, I just want to pop in here, folks. Uh, not my uh, usual self here, but I, I just want to pop in and let people know, folks. I'll tell you what. News is breaking at an incredible rate. The information that that uh, we've been able to develop here exclusive to the Hagman Report, exclusive to this show and the, the researchers, the team of researchers we have, 
is incredible. I'm kind of teasing out this little bit of information, but this has to do with uh, new information that I received. It, it began on New Year's Day. It's been rolling into uh, a particular story that has to relate to the Hillary email criminal cabal. Let me tell you something. When you read the, the investigative findings, I think you're going to just be astounded. I'm still trying to process this. This is bigger than you can imagine. And, and I want to kind of punch in and, and thank you, John, for uh, sitting in for me, and thank you, Joe, for handling the program. This is perhaps one of the most uh, astounding things I've ever seen, and I'm not overstating. I don't. I don't think I'm overstating this at all. So, again, I just want to kind of announce that. And what I what I intend to do, if this is or what I intend to do, is publish the findings within the Hagman Report forum first, and that of course gives the people who have supported the investigations uh, the, our ability to conduct real live shoe leather wearing investigations. It, it gives you the ability to to um, access that information first. And then, of course, within a certain amount of time, it'll break on our website, hagmanreport.com, and then, of course, on the Hagman Report. So that's the, that's the plan. And in addition, the information that, that we, that, that, that we, we've got is, will, will be on its way to, uh, two different places, DC, of course, as well as, uh, Sean Hannity. So, um, and I know that, uh, John Solomon, Sarah Carter, um, uh, Tom Fitton and others will be interested in this information. So that's kind of an update. And again, I want to thank, uh, John for sitting in for me and Joe for handling this. Now, I want to tell you something. Remember yesterday I talked about this really great surprise we've got for you? I want to tell you about American history tellers. Oh, I have, I have, I got a, just a special surprise for you. You know, Harry Truman said, there is nothing new in the world except the history you do not know. I love that quote. And you know how much I love history. You know how much I love history. And you know how much history can teach us about current events past his prologue. And, and just to cite a Q-ism, uh, what future, uh, uh, future, or past predicts the future, or something like that. I, I'm, I, I, I'm sure I was trying to paraphrase a, a Q quote, but nonetheless, let me ask you: How well do you really know your history? Now, I'm talking about the stories that make up that make up America and Americans. Everything from the words that we speak, the ideas that we share, the values we admire, and the freedoms we defend, can all be traced to our shared history. There is this new podcast. I've listened to it, and I am just sucking this in. I subscribe to it. It puts you inside the shoes of everyday people in the time, in the place, or event that made history. The Cold War, for example, or the Revolution, Prohibition, the Space Race, or the Gold Rush. And they show you how history affected them, their families, and how it affects you. American History Tellers. Write that down. American History Tellers is hosted by Lindsey Graham. No, 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 no. Not that Lindsey Graham. No, Lindsey Graham, the history buff, who, uh, uh, by the way, great voice, who teams up with 
PhD historians to bring you a new take on history telling. This is the most uh, seriously. This is this is one of the most fa- fantastic products I've seen. And you know, again, you know how much I like history, American history tellers. It is it. They take the first person's perspective with sound design to really get history just stuck in your mind. You're going to love this. The first six episodes for this brand new series, it starts today, debuts today. We'll cover the Cold War. The show premieres again today. It premiered today, but you can start. You can start listening right now. Go to and subscribe. Subscribe. Look, subscribe and listen to American History Tellers on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're like me, I had to ask my daughter Jackie, "Hey, can you find this for me?" And she found it in like I don't know five seconds. Just wherever you listen to podcasts, go and subscribe and listen to American History Tellers. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. American History Tellers. That's the name of the program. Folks, subscribe today. American History Tellers, subscribe today. Uh, please do that. I mean, seriously, you're, you're going you're gonna to love it. American History Tellers. Joe, i got to tell you, man, uh, it's just been a long day. By the way, I was on Pat Campbell, KFAQ, 1170 this morning for an hour talking about everything from Las Vegas. And Doug Papa was on. I didn't, I didn't say nice. that. He was, Doug Papa was also on, uh, Pat Campbell's show. Um, Pat Campbell is just a general, just a great guy. And it's KFAQ 1170. If you go on his Twitter feed, I think he's got a, uh, posting to the archive of my appearance this morning. So that was like seven o'clock, I think. It's six o'clock his time, seven o'clock my time. Well, that's great. So, and yeah. I know you got, uh, something that you're working on. As you just yep. said, that's going to be big and we're looking forward. To that, any uh, just real quick, any uh, thoughts on the Trump Bannon feud? Out of context, three words. Out of context, it has to be something like that. Out of context, and I've looked at this as best I could. Out of context, end of story. So, well, the uh, replies to Bannon from the White House don't seem to be out of context. Well, no, whatever that's no, no, and you've got, but. It's like everything else. It's not the it's not the reply. It's it's the uh, spin and and repetition and just the uh, however they do it. You know, with respect to the replies, it's it's the uh, uh, force multipliers of the reply. But anyway, no, I, I get that. There is some bad blood there. You cannot. Um, you really can't. You know what? It is what it is. Jones and Stone, Alex Jones and Roger Stone talked about it earlier today. Yeah, I, I did see uh, some comments on that that I read about. Uh, I did not watch the video, but very interesting nonetheless. And um, <clears throat> I think it's a, a whole lot to do about nothing because it doesn't do anything one way or the other uh, when you break it down. It's just uh, one man's opinion. And even if Bannon did say that, as I noted, he wasn't on the Trump team until two months after those meetings happened. So what real information does he have other than what the public's been told? Um, Look, I, I don't know. I, I, I really think... Uh, Donald Trump is a brilliant strategizer for with with social networking with Twitter. I think he is absolutely driving the media, mainstream media nuts mm-hmm. with his tweets, and that's yes, probably was, the intent here. Yeah, he is, and we got a few examples of those this segment. The View host mock and Satan paranoid Trump for tweeting liberals in the DOJ may be deep state. 
Wednesday on ABC's The View, the larger liberal panel mocked the idea that officials appointed by President Obama are still working and the federal government could have an agenda against Trump. Host Whoopi Goldberg led the discussion by laughing at the idea as she described uh, Trump's tweets about the deep state. Both the current guy in the White House and his son have been tweeting about the so-called deep state, which is a conspiracy theory which government employees loyal to Obama and Hillary are working hard behind the scenes to derail his presidency. Now, does this seem a little bit odd, she says? And then she goes on from there. You have to watch the video. It's up on Hagman Report. I saw it. I saw it. it. This is, look, look, anyone who does not believe in the deep state, you've got a problem. Anyone who doesn't, whether you call it, and Kevin Ship talked about this. The deep state is a subset of the shadow government, the permanent state as referenced by Sebastian Gorka. And you've got to understand how this works. And if you deny the existence of a deep state, then you're so far gone and your head's so far up your, you know, or in the sand, uh, there ain't really, there's, there's no way to help you. That's my belief. If you deny that, I mean, how, yeah. can, how can you deny it? Well, you it's crazy. The other host, Hostin, picked up on the theme calling the president paranoid to believe anyone in the government could be trying to sabotage his presidency. I wonder if the president really believes this. I've been joking about it. This is the first I'm hearing about this deep state. If you are playing <laughs> to the conspiracy theorists in your base or 46% of Americans, that makes sense. If you are the president of the United States and you are paranoid enough to believe that some conspiracy against your presidency that there is a conspiracy against your presidency, and you have nuclear warheads at your disposal, shouldn't we all be a little bit concerned about this? And then Whoopi Goldberg chimed in, this is no joke, people are getting hurt. Yeah, yeah. I, Funny. And, and by the way, that statement, this is no joke, people are getting hurt. That to, to me, I, I know what she's referring to, and you know how, i, I got to tell you, I've seen that statement. Um. Uh, I can't, well, I can't even tell you where I saw the statement because I just can't tell you. Except to say, lawfare. Lawfare. Hey folks, thank you so much for entertaining me or allowing me to be present. John, thanks for covering for me. I've got to get back to this project. This is a massive undertaking, but uh, you'll be hearing more about it. John, thanks for sitting in for me. Joe, I'm going to turn it back to you. Yeah, we look forward to reading that report. One of the funny comments on this, uh, on the view talking about the deep state. I can't really read all of it because of the profanity that's in it, but it's, uh, something along the lines of, um, these screeching loons on the view dare to lecture anybody about being sane, especially after they spent the entire year twisting and thrashing in the throes of abject lunacy. And that's, pretty much sums it up in another commenter. If anybody watches The View for their political information, then they got deeper problems than Whoopi's Deep State's theorem. Uh, pretty funny there. But, you know, there's a whole bunch of crazy news going on. Chelsea Clinton denies worshipping Satan. We po- posted an article up on Hagman Report earlier today where Hillary, uh, Hillary, might as well be Hillary, Chelsea Clinton wished the Church of Satan a happy new year. And it all started when the former first daughter wished a well-known satanic organization a happy new year Tuesday night. And what's interesting about this is that the Church of Satan is verified, obviously, and I want to know who who verifies that. But anyway, she goes on to say, uh, it's been so long, happy new year, and talks about uh, and a pleasant exchange that she had with somebody from the, the Church of, of Satan. 
But then she came out and is saying that, uh, you know, we can't be civil. That she's, she's saying that, you know, uh, we can't be civil with those who have different religious beliefs. And she, she in the tweet, oh my goodness gracious, can't we be civil, cheerful, and respectful to friends with people who don't share our religious beliefs? Sometimes we even marry them. I'm a Methodist and my husband is Jewish. Thank you for asking. That was in response, uh, this is at least Chelsea Clinton, you were open about the worshiping of Satan. And, you know, she continued to go on and tweet more stuff out. Um, uh, oh, we should all, we're all Americans regardless of our religious beliefs and should get the health care we need. And she's a babbling idiot. But anyway, does she, I mean, she wears the upside down cross, John, as you said on our daily show. That, to me, shows me enough of her religion and it is Satanism and the way she promotes abortion. You're muted, buddy. That's the second time this evening. Unfortunately, it appears to be true. And, Joe, I made this uh, comment with you on today's Hagman Daily Show. In a way, I have deep empathy for Chelsea Clinton, although the the terrestrial man in me doesn't like her whatsoever. But I think you can make a reasonable argument that and this is my opinion, I'm stating my opinion only, but there are serious allegations, and there have been for years and years, that both Bill and Hillary Clinton are involved in wildly inappropriate behavior, uh, case in point. From uh, their own words, just even, absolutely. Their, their honeymoon, practicing voodoo and talking about the voodoo ceremonies. Oh, Hillary right. Clinton talking about channeling the ghost of Eleanor Roosevelt. They're talking right. about beheading yes. a chicken in her backyard to Moloch. These are just the open things that they've admitted to. Their love and worship of Planned Parenthood. Who knows what else in some of the things we've heard from behind the scenes. Well, absolutely. And let's also consider the number of times that Bill Clinton flew on the Lolita Express. Clearly, evidentiary court permissible evidence via the pilot's flight log of who was present on that plane flying to what I imagine is probably a pretty creepy island. In fact, Joe, uh, I don't want to digress too far, but I saw a aerial photo of that island day before yesterday, and there's actually a temple right. I, uh, I on the island. There. Yeah, People that, should do an image search on that because that's fascinating, John, and I'm glad you brought that up. But there is some kind of aerial display too. And is there words there, or is it just the temple? Well, uh, like you know, some um, airports when you like when you fly into Orlando, it has a, a big hedge display where the hedges are cut out to spell out the word Orlando. Oh yes, indeed. I didn't see any words uh, at all. But um, just to finish the thought on on Chelsea Clinton, as Christians, we need to. Remember that, that whereas many of us were fortunate enough to be born into a Christian family or a, or at least an American family with traditional Judeo-Christian values, Chelsea Clinton, who I'm old enough to remember as a young girl when Bill Clinton took office in early 1993, uh, 92, uh, she was born, I think you can argue, into a very occultic, Luciferian, certainly, uh, a, a, prominent family in the global elite Luciferian club. And it stands to reason, Joe, that as the years go by, she adopts that as her religion. She's, I wouldn't put 10 cents down that, that Chelsea Clinton is a Methodist. Um, and she has demonstrably worn an, an upside-down cross for years. And she's just a, a twisted, lost human being. Now, on the other hand, uh, again, these are allegations, but if 
she is guilty of anything, child sacrifice or any of the, the horrific reports that we receive lately, daily here at the Hagman Report, uh, then it's hard to have empathy for her. But at the same time, one must ask oneself, do you want any human being to ultimately wind up in hell? Joe? No, that's uh, very well said. But, you know, she has she's an adult. She knows right from wrong. Even if you grew up in that type of environment, I know many people who grew up in, in environments much like that or worse. Uh, and, and, you know, they still know right from wrong. So that responsibility lies on her feet. I want to switch to the weather real quick just to cover this because there's a, an interesting story I found. But this, tri- this winter storm, Grayson, um, it's just amazing to watch these winter storms just come and pummel areas. Like we had our you know, 138 inches of snow over the last seven days. And the, uh, John, what did you say, 92% of the country is below freezing? Yes. Read it uh, early this morning on one of the mainstream platforms. I can't remember which one. Think about this. 92% of the country. I wish you could see the graphic that Joe has up on his computer right now. It's on Dredge. Uh, it's the live chill map. And you can see how much of the country is so cold. You know, I, I want to mention something else quickly. Um, two things that blew up big on Twitter over the last couple of days. I got a great picture last night after the show wrapped. It was a great show last night, by the way. But they were they were spraying chemtrails over over our town here at eleven eleven thirty p.m. Eastern, and it's been dark. There hasn't been hardly any sunlight at all for two weeks, and they're spraying us at night. When it was six degrees outside, uh, I had a number of retweets and comments on Twitter this morning from people in Ohio, uh, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, all of whom were sprayed heavily uh, yesterday and yesterday evening. And the other thing I want to mention quickly, just uh, with regard to Epstein's Island and the aerial photo, if you if you're interested in this, if you care to uh, go to my Twitter feed at Robertson John and. I found in an article three days ago an aerial photo of Creative Artist Agency, which is the biggest A-lister factory in Hollywood. Uh, it's located in Century City, which is uh, which was built in the 1980s on the exact location of the old MGM backlot. And I would remind you all that MGM uh, infamously created the Wizard of Oz, and we know how much Luciferian symbology is involved in that. Go to my Twitter feed. You've got to see this aerial shot. It's two pyramids pushed into one another, and then there's a pyramid cut in the grass, like Joe was talking about, in the landscaping, and there's even the eye of Osiris or the eye of Horus that is a little piece of landscaping, and when you look at it from above, it is just as creepy as it gets in Pedo Wood. They never, uh, they never pass up an opportunity to, to flaunt their symbolism in our faces and they do it they do it constantly uh real quick on this tra- on this uh, storm grayson uh what makes this storm so different from others it, and one thing when i i've been following weather for a long time it is the pressure and the low pressure that they're calling for here uh what they this is what they call a bombogenesis it's defined by a rapid drop in atmospheric pressure of 24 millibars or more in 24 hours and they expect this could drop anywhere from 45 to 50 millibars in 24 hours, becoming one of the most powerful storms you will ever see, one of the most powerful and strongest storms. They say not only would this be one of the most rapid rates of bombogenesis associated with an East Coast storm, but its central pressure may bottom out in the 950 millibar range, also among the strongest offshore, offshore storms you'll ever see. And just to give you some comparisons, in 
February 2013, you had Storm Nemo um, that was down into the 970 millibars, and Sandy was at 940. So they're calling for basically a storm similar to Sandy in its strength and pressure. They're calling for uh, damaging wind gusts of 70 miles per hour uh, from Massachusetts and Nantucket. 50-mile-an-hour wind gusts are possible throughout New England and New York City, as well as the tri-state area, with snow accumulations anywhere from 8 to 24 inches along the coast, as well as ice storms. And another huge threat to this is the power system. They are calling and saying that power outages are very highly likely all the way from Atlantic City up to Bangor, Maine, and it's going to be a storm to watch for sure. And I'd like to know how most of the country, who's not used to dealing with the cold, are dealing with the cold and how they're staying warm um, in this cold stretch that we've seen in in the very early parts of the winter. This story deals with the cold out of Chicago, and it's just a heartbreaking story. A Chicago man was told to stop slumber party slumber parties for homeless during the cold. A suburban Chicago resident who offered up slumber parties in his basement for homeless people in his neighborhood during dangerously cold weather says officials have given him an ultimatum. Stop the slumber parties or your house will be condemned. Greg Schiller said he began letting a group of homeless people sleep in his unfinished basement last month during brutally cold nights, offering them food and warm beverages and a cot to sleep on while watching movies. He was then told uh, by the town after last year when he was housing homeless in his garage that he was not allowed to do this. So what he did is he believed the city code would allow for slumber parties, but officials said that there are sleeping regulations and his basement does not meet those. What are those regulations? They go on to say that his house does not comply with the codes and regulations, such as inadequate light and ventilation. His ceiling is too low or not high enough, they say, and the windows are in too high of a location. They're giving him 24 hours to return the basement to a storage area and take down the cots, or they're going to condemn his house. And all he's doing is helping homeless people get off the street. It's really sad to see what this country, and especially the lunatic liberal Chicago, is doing. I mean, we've seen this with the feeding the homeless people. People have been arrested in towns in Louisiana and Florida for setting up um, you know, basically picnics in a park and feeding homeless people. Now people's houses are going to be condemned if they are feeling charitable and want to open their doors to allow them to sleep there in the night to stay out of the cold. It's ridiculous. And how can you condemn somebody's house for having people sleep over? It doesn't make sense. Well, the, the, the state, Joe, of course, and this is across all 50 states, unfortunately, with eminent domain, with asset forfeiture, uh, whether it be a legitimate drug case, for example, or not. We've certainly heard many of both. But think about this, uh, listeners. I really want to reiterate Joe's point. And God bless uh, Mr. Greg Schiller out of Chicago. Uh, your reward, sir, uh, will be in heaven as long as you're saved by Jesus Christ. But that being said, imagine this. If you were to pick up a homeless person and drive them to the slumber party, You've just violated the law because you're operating a taxi without the permit. If you let them stay in your home, get them out of the cold, who cares what height the ceiling is or where the windows are at? Chicago's Chicago's freezing. And lastly, I'm glad, Joe, that you mentioned the uh, Florida case. That really troubled me about two years ago, two and a half years ago. It was a a husband-wife team, and they were feeding hundreds of homeless people every day. And guess what the state did? They cut them off. 
and the homeless went hungry. They so, came and arrested them while they were feeding the homeless. Unbelievable. Uh, one day. Exactly. Next time you get the misimpression that the government's looking out for you, that we have a benevolent democracy, which we do not. We have a constitutional representative republic. Just remember some of these stories, uh, and we won't even get into uh, the no-knock raids and when the militarized police show up at the wrong home and you know shoot dogs and flashbang babies. We're not picking on the police writ large, but certainly at a federal level and many of the states, unfortunately, this kind of stuff, Joe, is out of control. Just remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. Absolutely right. Um, And it's a shame, again, you see that happening. I wanted to spend more time on this, but we're going to get into this a little bit with Laura Loomer. Trump ex-campaign chair Manafort sues Robert Mueller, Rosenstein, and the Department of Justice, saying that the actions of the DOJ and Rosenstein in issuing um, uh, for the investigation of Robert Mueller into Manafort uh, went well beyond what order he would authority he was ordered and what authority that the order granted him and has went well beyond what is in accordance with the law and he is now suing robert Mueller, asking that all actions taken by the special counsel be set aside while the case is argued former campaign chairman manafort has sued robert Mueller as well as the Attorney General Rod Rosenstein in U.S. federal court alleging Mueller has strayed beyond the scope of the investigation he was authorized to pursue. There's more quotes in there from Manafort and his lawyers, so we're going to get into that on the other side with Laura Loomer, as well as an update from on Las Vegas and the Las Vegas police investigation into that October 1st shooting. We're going to hear from her on that and a number of other issues, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Laura Loomer on the other side. just really snuck up on me. We were having a conversation about how to keep our furnaces from running 24-7 in this cold weather as up here over the weekend we're looking at a high of 5 degrees and a low of minus 5 with 40 mile an hour winds. So it's going to be really cold. Sounds like a, a weekend to cook some good chicken soup in the crock pot and stay inside and hope everybody else is staying warm also. Um, we're going to be joined by Laura Loomer a citizen journalist who was, uh, I'd say, instrumental in the coverage of the Las Vegas shooting, getting in there, uh, going to Las Vegas and getting into the press conference and uh, having the ability to ask important questions that other media outlets were refusing to ask. She's going to come in and give us an update on uh, her latest findings and, and theories and information as to where that investigation stands and what we can expect uh, to see in the near future, if anything, from law enforcement. Again, before the break, we were talking about Manafort suing Robert Mueller and Rosenstein, as well as the Department of Justice. Excuse me. And to pick up where we left off, Manafort's suit alleges that the order appointing Mueller exceeds the Deputy Attorney General's authority. As a result, all actions taken by the special counsel must be set aside. The actions of the DOJ and Mr. Rosenstein in issuing the appointment order and Mueller's actions pursuant to the authority 
the order granted him were arbitrary and not in accordance with the law. The suit reads, The appointment order authorizing Mueller as special counsel permits him to investigate any matters that may arise directly from the investigation. Experts have said it gives Mueller wide latitude to determine the course of his investigation. I think we're going to be in an uphill battle, Saul Weisenberg, a leading white-collar attorney referring, referring to Manafort's suit. These kinds of things usually don't prevail. So we will see what happens with that. Uh, nonetheless, pretty interesting as we see some pushback against Mueller and his investigation in the court in a court of law. We have with us Laura Loomer. Again, she was um, instrumental in the coverage of the Las Vegas shooting, getting in, in the Las Vegas press conference and not only releasing information on her Twitter feed, but also being able to ask very relevant questions that much of the other media, all of the other media outlets, refused to ask. Laura Loomer, welcome back to the Hagman Report. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great It's great to have you back, and I understand that you have um, some updated information on the Las Vegas investigation, so, so let's start there. Uh, what is... Uh, What's what's going on with this investigation? We heard that the FBI might take up to a year to release their findings in a report, but other agencies might release reports before that. What are you hearing about the movement of law enforcement in the investigation? Well, uh, you're correct. The, the FBI recently announced that uh, the report, the official report on the Las Vegas shooting investigation, isn't going to come out until a year after the shooting. So uh, we're probably not going to be getting a report until... October of 2018, uh, which is pretty ridiculous because um, given the fact that this was the worst mass shooting in U.S. history, you'd expect there to be more facts surrounding the investigation, like the motive, who Stephen Paddock was, why he did what he did. And we haven't really received any information um, regarding the investigation. Uh, another thing that is very problematic about this case is the fact that two days before uh, the shooting took place. It was made Nevada state law that autopsy reports, full autopsy reports on, you know, anybody who has an autopsy in the state of Nevada is to be released as public information. And we haven't really, we haven't seen any autopsy reports on any of the 58 victims. The coroner's office recently came out and said, oh, well, we have the cause and manner of death, uh, for the 58 victims, which was gunshot homicide by uh, gunshot, well, yeah, of course, of course, gunshot victims are going to die from gunshot wounds, so that's not exactly breaking news. So um, it's really interesting to note that the coroner's office um, is technically violating Nevada state law. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, pretty crazy to hear, and I saw that coroner's report. Were you surprised to see that all the deaths were attributed to gunshot wounds, as we saw lots of speculation that many believe that a few of the deaths were related to trampling and uh, other yeah. injuries related to, you know, uh, trying to evacuate that arena. Were you surprised to see there were all deaths due to gunshots? Yeah, I was, because we were told um, by EMS and LVMPD and first responders directly after the shooting that people would die from trampling. And they said that not all of the victims were gunshot victims. And then when the autopsy um, report, well, the unofficial autopsy report came out and all of the victims were listed as gunshot victims, it doesn't really make sense because... Uh, like you said, um, there was indication prior to this being released that many people had actually, in fact, died from being trampled. Okay. And, and what um, the, the coroner report also indicated that, uh, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but a certain amount of people died from 
gunshot wounds to the head, and then you know the rest were uh, wounds to the to the torso and into the extremities. Uh, anything right. interesting or or um, odd in the numbers or reports of the way people died? Yeah, so um, there were I think it was about thirty percent of the victims had gunshot wounds to the head. Which, if you're shooting from the 32nd floor of a very, you know, tall hotel, um, you know, about thousands of feet away, the chances of you having like a perfect sniper shot, execution style, and getting a headshot for 30% of the people that you hit, I mean, that just doesn't um, seem very plausible mathematically, given the fact that uh, supposedly Stephen Paddock had no training um, whatsoever with these types of weapons and. Um, I mean, we're talking about, you know, military training, you know, sniper, sniper training. These are, these are the kind of shots and the type of wounds that, uh, professionals would be carrying out. So it just doesn't add up. Uh, LVMPD, I believe they said it was, uh, 1100 rounds that were, that were fired in the course of nine minutes. And we're not even talking about nine minutes straight. We're just talking about nine minutes with some breaks and pauses in between. Um, even then, it just doesn't seem very plausible if he really did operate a bump stock and uh, shoot 1,100 rounds because given um, his age and, you know, his physical demeanor, um, he just would not have been able to physically carry out this attack by himself. Okay. And, and you know, I thought about that too, Laura, and I, the only thing I'll say on, on that is, Really, as far from what I can tell, we don't have anything to compare it to as far as, um, you know, what, what that would look like shooting from that elevated position and that distance firing into a crowd. I, I would imagine, um, and I understand that there, it, it does seem like, uh, the accuracy is off the charts for that kind of distance and whatnot. But I can also see a scenario where, you know, just the, they talk about that spray fire into the crowd, how the bullets would, you know, hit people in the head and, uh, um, and some that, that might look like uh, sniper shots to some, but maybe it's just like that uh, effect where you have everybody in, inside of this little enclosed space and you have the right trajectory and the bullets dropping in the right places. But who knows? I, I still don't am not sold that Stephen Paddock was the only shooter there. There's lots of, of questions surrounding this whole thing. And, well, how do we even know? How do we even know that he was the shooter? I mean, right. what evidence have police or the FBI really provided us with? Stephen Paddock being the shooter, other than pictures of his dead body or a dead body, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what Stephen Paddock really looks like. I mean, despite despite the image of his driver's license that was floating around online, but those could all be manufactured images. And I know that sounds conspiratorial, but the guy doesn't have any digital footprint. I mean, how do you not have a digital footprint in 2017 or 2018, um, you know, especially when you're a frequent um at Las Vegas casinos. I mean, we're talking about Las Vegas, which is the most surveilled city or one of the most surveilled cities in the world, right? A very popular destination. There's a lot of money everywhere. I mean, these casinos are very well surveilled. So how does nobody know anything about this guy? And, you know, how how do we even know he's the shooter? Like I said, they haven't released any surveillance footage or anything that would really prove that he carried all of those weapons or bags of weapons into his room and carry out the attack. Well, Laura, uh, John Robertson sitting in for Doug Hagman this evening. Welcome to the program. Uh, we were very pleased that you accepted our invitation to keep this at the forefront of our global audience's minds because this is a situation, in my opinion, where it sets a terrible precedent where the American 
public writ large seem to be willing to accept at this point the idea that federal authorities or even state authorities can essentially say, yeah, this happened, 58 people are dead, 59 including the shooter, and we're not going to tell you anything. Uh, I agree with your point, uh, and I'd like to add to that. We have a guest who's joined us uh, two or three times, Doug Papa, who uh, was a sheriff's deputy, uh, many decorations, and he also was the director of security for the Riviera. So we've uh, utilized him uh, quite a bit to give us sort of an inside law enforcement perspective on things. Uh, He posted an article yesterday, this from the Baltimore Post-Examiner, again from Doug Papa. He says, To date, the police have told us that Paddock acted alone, that there was no other person in his suite with him, and he was not connected to any group, either foreign or domestic. That very well could be true or not. At this, this is the key. At this point, I would not believe one word that comes from LVMPD, the FBI, or MGM Resorts International, the owners of Mandalay Bay Hotel, until all evidence is released and examined by experts in their respective fields, hired by the civil attorneys for the victims. Nothing is proven as far as I'm concerned. And this is where Doug Papa drops the bomb, Laura. What the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department uh, has, hasn't done is release one shred of evidence to date to back up their claims. Even worse, get this, even worse, they hired a law firm to fight in court to keep all the records and evidence out of the public view. Unbelievable, Laura. Yeah, well, I mean, this, that's not exactly new news. I mean, this has been an ongoing issue that the media and, you know, of course, the LVMPD is not really wanting to touch. Um, I have seen Doug Papa talk about this on TV, but for over a month now, we've seen these disputes where lawyers for the families representing the victims had to file temporary restraining orders against MGM and the LVMPD for, you know, destroying evidence, right? So they actually had to take out a temporary restraining order to prevent law enforcement, who's supposed to be collecting evidence and actually doing their job to investigate this, preventing them from destroying evidence, right? Just just think about that. Just think about how wrong that is, that victims' families had to actually hire lawyers to take out temporary restraining orders. So, you know, we're not we're not seeing or hearing about this in the media as much as we should but yeah, it's it's very concerning. I mean, it's you have to ask yourself why is MGM fighting this so hard, and why are they going through um, such great lengths to prevent the release of evidence? Yeah, that's a, a great question, Laura. What do we know about the lawsuits of the the families that they have brought um, against the hotel, and will this lead to the uh, discovery where evidence from the casino from that evening? will have to be brought forward in the court of law? Well, that's the big question right now because you have a lot of uh, lawyers who are representing victims. I know there's a lawyer named, uh, I believe her name is Catherine Lombardo. She was actually on Tucker Carlson with Doug Papa, one of the uh, lawyers representing the family. And then there's other uh, lawyers and law firms who have been hired to represent people from out of state, in state. Um, but it's not just the families who have sued MGM and LVMPD for the release of the footage. Uh, a lot of news stations have actually taken it upon themselves now to sue, uh, to see the records, to see the surveillance footage, and uh, you know this is becoming a legal battle. And of course, uh, you have to ask the question again: 
Why is MGM putting up such a big fight? Why is the LVMPD, the FBI, putting up such a big fight? Why are victims' families and local and mainstream media outlets having to actually sue them to see surveillance footage? I mean, if they're so concerned about solving this this horrendous crime, this horrendous massacre, why not utilize, you know, the public's help and the media's help by just releasing this surveillance footage? You know, that's an excellent point, Laura, and uh, you are a journalist and you have been at this for some time, and I'm very curious as to your opinion on this. We've bandied it back and forth here in the studio for a couple of months now. Mm-hmm. What is your opinion on the body count ex post facto of people who survived, of course, starting with the young lady in Southern California who within a day or two, uh, put up a Facebook page and she wanted to gather other survivors together as witnesses to simply bring their perspective to the public forum. In your opinion, Laura, uh, I believe we're at 10 is the current body count. Isn't this starting to feel a little bit like the witnesses that woke up dead after the JFK assassination? Yeah, I know, right? Uh, I was I was joking with uh, some friends of mine a couple weeks ago. I said that the uh, Las Vegas shooting survivors are starting to drop like Clinton associates, and it's it's very strange, right? I I don't know if it's ten exactly. Um, last time I checked, it was around five or six. It could be different because you know uh, the media and a lot of these deaths and a lot of these. Um, you know, strange occurrences aren't really being reported. So you have to go about it yourself to really uncover them and find them because these stories tend to be buried by the media. And a lot of people are shocked, even to this day, to still find out that, you know, the number is so high for, for survivors who have died following the shooting, these witnesses. Um, it is it is very odd, and that's another element of this investigation that is very strange um, you know, on top of the fact that we still don't have any information about why this happened, who Stephen Paddock is, if he even actually is the shooter, if multiple people were involved, if this was an act of ISIS. Uh, we don't know why are these people dying and having such strange deaths, right? 28-year-olds don't just drop dead. Uh, healthy married couples don't just, you know, have their car explode while they're a mile from their house. Things like that just don't happen. Yeah, you're right, and some of those are very strange, especially the the car accident you just referenced, where apparently yeah. their car hit a gate uh, out in front of their property, and uh, they couldn't get out of the car, and it, the car burned, and I heard it took firefighters a long time to put out the fire, more so than usual, which I, I don't know if that's speculation or not, but the whole thing does seem very weird. Since the last time we've had you on, has your theory or ideas into what really happened uh, change? Do you have any uh, new angles or, or things you're looking into? And I'll just tell you, me personally, um, I believe at this point it is either ISIS-related or, I hate to say the guy was a lone wolf because I don't even believe that when I say it, or it's some, something that we have no idea what it is. But I have not, I'm, I'm kind of circling back to the ISIS and Islamic uh, mm-hmm. angle of this. Yeah, I mean, just as I, I believe I mentioned this on uh, your show last time I was on, but I still believe it was ISIS. Uh, ISIS took responsibility for the Las Vegas shooting four times, okay? They warned about attacking ISIS in their propaganda videos and in their print publications months before the Las Vegas shooting, okay? 
And these things go unreported. The mainstream media doesn't like to show ISIS propaganda videos. They have a policy where they don't play ISIS propaganda videos or, or read ISIS propaganda on TV. But in my opinion, and this may be an unpopular opinion, I think that's actually putting this country and the citizens of this country at a greater national security threat. Because if you're failing to inform people of the threat of, you know, the, the actual threat of Islamic terrorism that surrounds them, then you're just setting them up, um, you know, to be become victims of of Islamic terrorism and also just uh, be uninformed because now you have a lot of people saying, oh, well, I think this is ISIS and ISIS has taken responsibility four times, but then you have DHS and FBI and LVMPD saying, no, ISIS is lying. But if you look at the facts of the situation, one, like I said, ISIS warned that they were going to be attacking Vegas previously. DHS held a joint program with LVMPD to train them, I believe in December, so uh, 10 months or so before the shooting even took place um, in case there was a big uh, terrorist attack at a concert or sporting event. Um, event. And then uh, on top of that, ISIS uh, took responsibility four times. And uh, ISIS has never taken responsibility for an attack that they've, they've um, never committed. So uh, people will like to bring up a casino shooting in the Philippines or uh, the Egyptian airliner that went down, and those are the two attacks that people said ISIS took responsibility for, and then it turned out to not be true. But months later, and this, of course, didn't get the attention it deserved, the investigators came out and said, actually, ISIS was responsible. So for anybody who's going to tell you that ISIS lies all the time or that ISIS tells people that they're responsible and they're not telling the truth, that's... That's factually incorrect. Every single time ISIS has claimed to take responsibility for an attack, it turned out to be true. Excellent analysis, Laura. Question for you, and please feel free to take a pass on this if it in any way compromises the excellent boots-on-the-ground work that you've been doing uh, really since the tragedy occurred in Las Vegas. Uh, I know from some of our uh, offline communication that you had planned on uh, being in Vegas and for some different reasons we're unable to do so, but uh, but you are returning soon. Uh, again, I don't want to compromise your plan, but I'm curious if you'd care to share uh, your investigative strategy moving forward, and particularly yeah. with your commentary on ISIS. And I I am by no means uh, against that that hypothesis. I think there's a. I mean, it yeah. seems obvious to me that we're dealing with multiple shooters. I have a huge problem with the idea that this guy bump fired with carbines at 30 degree plus angle that doesn't even really work mechanically physical motility wise uh so again um when you return to vegas are you focusing on the the isis hypothesis or are you still uh following different avenues of investigation but with an eye on the isis thing i mean i'm i'm still focused on isis but my main point of going back to las vegas is to hold it, uh, officials accountable and to get questions so i i won't say exactly what i'm going to be doing because i don't want to compromise it or give it away but the focus of my trip to vegas is to hold officials accountable to get answers so we've seen a lack of effort on behalf of the las vegas media and the mainstream media really to get answers from these officials no people are talking about them but nobody's really asking people questions or trying to get um, get answers to these questions. And I find it really interesting because Sheriff Lombardo actually sat down for a two-hour-long interview with George Knapp, who claims to be an investigative journalist over at Channel 8 News in Las Vegas. And during his interview, he uh, described people like me and you and many others as conspiracy theorists and said, 
oh, well, I wish I could track these people down and find them because I would show them uh, that they're wrong and I would give them all the evidence they need to prove <laughs> that we're right about this. And I just think it's really funny because the only thing that we're really asking to see is the surveillance footage. So if Joseph Lombardo really wants to find me, I'm not exactly a hard person to get in touch with. I'm not exactly a hard person to find. Maybe he could take the first step of unblocking me on Twitter Right, that might be a good step, and then maybe send me a DM if he really wishes to get in touch with me. But he's done everything in his power to avoid me and avoid my questions and avoid uh, being held accountable. From the moments he blocked me from the LVMPD presser to blocking me on Twitter and to having the public information officer ignore all of my phone calls to the LVMPD. So, um, you know, these people are trying to use. Um, agents of misinformation in the media who are on their side, who are also getting paid by the casinos like MGM, um, to spin their narrative for them and literally lie for them um, in uh, the public domain, as we saw with this George Knapp interview. But, um, you know, I know, of course, it's a lie. I have video evidence to prove that it's a lie. And if people in the Las Vegas media aren't going to hold them accountable, then I'll just have to do it myself. No, you're, you're absolutely right, Laura. And um, it's amazing, you know. You, I have not seen that two-hour interview or read uh, that, but I definitely will do that after the show's over. But obviously, I mean, the guy's just paying lip service. Do you think that they are uh, just covering their own behinds because the FBI said, you know, this is the way it's going to be. We're taking over the investigation. You're going to play uh, public relations damage control. We're not going to feed you anything, and, and you're going to have to deal with it. Or do you think there is more cooperation to hide the evidence? I think they're running for the hills. I mean, a lot of people don't know about the inner workings of the LVMPD, but if you look at the breakdown in the top three officials at the LVMPD, you have Sheriff Lombardo, you have Under Sheriff uh, Kevin McMahill, and then you have uh, Assistant Sheriff Todd Fasulo. Today was Todd Fasulo's last day at the LVMPD. He's going to be leaving, as I exclusively reported um, uh, like a few weeks ago, he's going to be taking a very cushy job as the head of security at Wynn Resort. So I remember I, I reported and I said, I believe on your show, that these guys are going to be getting payouts, right? They're going to be getting deep state positions or they're going to be getting jobs from the casinos because that's what you get in Las Vegas when you keep your mouth shut. Uh, Kevin McMahill is in talks or was in talks with Raider Stadium for a position in security. And I'm being told that Lombardo is not running for re-election, despite the fact that he's, uh, you know, adamantly denying that claim after I had exclusively reported that as well. And I'm being told uh, by my sources that he's been offered a position with DHS. So, you know, they're all running for the hills, and it gives them plenty of time to look for other uh, forms of employment before this uh, report um you know, supposedly comes out in 10 months from now. Well, that's uh, that's very interesting, Laura. And uh, we're only a few minutes away from the break, and I don't know uh, that there's really much more to ask about Las Vegas. I want to get your opinion on a number of other things. Uh, the pro-DACA, I'm checking out your Twitter feed, and, and subscribe to Laura's Twitter feed if you are not subscribed to her or following her already. That is at Laura Loomer. And she has a bunch of followers, and she is constantly tweeting and sharing information on Twitter. And, uh, Laura, on the other side of the break, I want to kind of switch gears. There's a lot of stuff going on. I'm learning about this uh, pro-DACA rally in Los Angeles, and you talk about a citizen journalist who was threatened with arrest for videotaping this um, pro-DACA rally. And I want to talk to you about that. Also, what we see 
in the news today with uh, the strange story of the the feud between Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. I think it's weird. And any and everything else that, that we can and, and you want to get into on the other side because there's so much going on. And um, I see, I mean, you do tweet a lot, and you got a lot of great stories up there, stuff that we uh, covered and, and want to cover, like one, this uh, John, I don't know if you saw this, Representative Keith Ellison uh, was posing with a picture with Antifa uh, promoting their anti-fascist handbook. Yes, and that's uh, yes. that's pretty interesting. But a whole bunch of stuff going on in the news. And um, Laura, also, we we've been doing a few shows in the last few broadcasts about this uh, what we this phenomenon, this Q and non. I don't know if you have any opinions on that, but maybe on the other side of the break, if you do, I'd like to hear what they are. So would I. With Laura Loomer. Her Twitter handle is at Laura Loomer. Make sure you follow her. She's going to be with us for the next segment, and we're going to get into a whole host of other uh, political and economic issues with Laura. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to this edition of the Hagman Report. of the Hagman Report. We have Laura Loomer with us, and during the break she told us that she has just launched a new website. LauraLoomer.us is the website, and go there and, and bookmark that, and obviously uh, keep an eye on that for all kinds of, of different information from Las Vegas to uh, Laura, I, I guess just come on and, and tell us what you plan on doing with the website. Uh, so I launched the website uh, recently after I was unverified on Twitter because I realized I had to create my own platform after, you know, social media really is just a lot of these left-leaning uh, social media companies like Twitter and Facebook are just on a witch hunt, right, to just purge conservatives from their platform. Uh, so I'm very happy I have a website now. I'm going to be uh, posting a lot of my videos, my content, and really it's just a place, too, where people can subscribe to receive exclusive email updates from me. So if you're interested in supporting citizen journalism or learning more about what I'm going to be doing, you can subscribe to my website at lauralumer.us to receive exclusive updates that I do not post on Twitter. Well, that's awesome. And, folks, Laura Loomer is a citizen journalist who has was at the very at the forefront and still is of the Las Vegas shooting investigation and is a citizen journalist who does so much more than that, is working constantly to expose the left and the, their corruption and their media insanity. And you can help her by supporting her work. And the link for the free start is there on her Twitter account and also at PayPal. And that is paypal.me backslash Laura Loomer. Is that correct? Yeah. All right. And it's also, as Eric just told me, 
on her website. You can go there and support Laura on PayPal or support Laura on Freestarter. And especially with, you know, Twitter, the, obviously they don't like the work you are doing. Otherwise they would not unverify you, but you should definitely wear that as a badge of honor. <laughs> uh, and I, I know you, you have this on your Twitter feed, Chelsea Clinton and her engagements with the Church of Satan, wishing them a happy new year. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed that the Church of Satan, of course, is verified. Um, but, you know, we yeah. can't have citizen journalists verified. That's too much. Well, a lot of people are verified. I mean, if you look at, if you look at, um, for example, like what's going on in Iran right now, you have people like, you have, uh, Ahmadinejad verified, right? So they talk, Twitter talks about how you're going to be unverified if you're a hateful person. And I believe they unverified me because of my comments about Islam and, um, you know, Islamic yeah. terrorism following the Islamic terror attack in New York City in October on Halloween. And I just find it really funny because um, they're actually willing to verify, like, legitimate Islamic terrorists and people who toss gays off buildings. But if you're conservative, you're going to be unverified and banned from Twitter. So. Yeah, that's uh, it's pretty crazy how that happens. Um, and we see it happening to so many more people um, in on the conservative side of, of the media. Mostly, though, that is the independent or citizen journalists that don't, you know, aren't with a network or don't have a big organization. They, uh, start there and, and they work their way out because they know, uh, you know, they're not gonna, it doesn't matter the outcry and, and the backlash that they get for it. It, to them, it is worth, uh, you know, taking that, that mark away from you. It's almost like a, a way of uh, trying to delegitimize who you are on their website. But, you know, the, the followers and the yeah. content speaks for itself. Um, speaking of the content on your Twitter page, I was learning about this pro-DACA rally, apparently where Linda Sassour is at Dianne Feinstein's office, and you have protesters being threatened with arrest for taping this. What's going on in at Feinstein's office? So Linda Sarsour and Alyssa Milano, who are some of the most infamous, you know, anti-Trump bigots who claim to be women's rights supporters, but they actually support and endorse Sharia law. Uh, they are staging a protest um, in in favor of DACA, right? So they're rallying in favor of illegal immigration in front of Senator Feinstein's office. And so a lot of Trump supporters came out in California to protest this, especially because, you know, tensions are high in California right now, especially given, uh, you know, the situation and the ruling over uh, Kate Steinle. I mean, we all know what happened to Kate Steinle, who was uh, shot, murdered by an illegal immigrant who was deported, I believe, what, eight times from this country and was still able to live in the sanctuary city of San Francisco. So, um, you know, the tensions are very high, and this is a very um, big issue that a lot of people in California are very passionate about. And uh, when Mike Tokes, who was actually investigating with me in Las Vegas, arrived on the scene today in front of Senator Feinstein's office, he was actually threatened by police. They threatened to arrest him, put him in handcuffs and arrest him for simply filming and wanting to cross the street to film uh, the gathering of illegal immigrants and, you know, Linda Sarsour and Alyssa Milano. So uh, it's very problematic that we have law enforcement who are pretty much violating the constitutional right of of law-abiding citizens who choose to stand with our president and then they're siding instead with illegal immigrants who, you know, oppose the rule and order of this country and uh, really don't stand with our Constitution since they're, they have no problem crossing our country, our borders illegally and, 
you know, supporting people who are murdering innocent, innocent American citizens. Indeed. You know, Laura, I'm so pleased that you mentioned California. It's, it's my home state. I relocated out of there a little over two years ago. And Good job. Yeah, it was, I'll tell you, it, it's, it ripped the Band-Aid off quickly. <laughs> and if you guys elect Gavin Newsom, I mean, they're talking about Gavin Newsom being your new governor. Not my new governor. I live in Pennsylvania. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, for the Californians. I wanted to ask you, and, and God bless them, because a lot of folks who don't really know California, maybe have never even been, California, if you look at it county by county, and I believe there are 44 counties in California, it's like many states where essentially Los Angeles County, Santa Clara County, Alameda County, that being you know the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, the Sacramento, greater Sacramento region, swings the entire state. There are about a third of the state's population are conservative. Uh, in California, people have got guns falling out of their ears. It's not a disarmed state. A lot of rules, yes. But I wanted to ask you, Laura, uh, did you see the piece on Gateway Pundit yesterday where uh, sort of as an artistic protest, uh, some individual or group came up with those brilliant signs that they tacked to a bunch of the Welcome yeah. to California signs? Wasn't that awesome? Those were great, and a lot of people thought it was a joke at first, but that was a brilliant idea because it it blended so nicely with the actual sign, and it wasn't over the top. So driving by, you wouldn't really notice it unless you were actually paying attention to the sign. So, you know, props to whoever did that. That actually got a lot of attention, and I think it really caused people to question what it means because if you don't know what it means or what a sanctuary city means, you kind of do a double take, and it makes you think. So... Uh, but, you know, that's just another act of citizen journalism. Whether you're putting up signs, putting up stickers, or, you know, making videos or confronting people, that's another way of informing the public and getting your message across and informing informing American citizens of topics that, you know, the mainstream media or even local media in California doesn't really want to talk about uh, fairly, which is this growing problem of sanctuary cities and the harboring of illegal immigrants by the Democrats to secure votes in the future. You know, Laura, I, you, you spark uh, uh, curiosity here uh, in me regarding citizen journalism as a whole. And again, you bring uh, an enormous amount of gravitas to the uh, the citizen journalist world, the world of, of independent media. And it made me think, you know, back in the late 19th and early 20th century, political cartoons were enormous. I mean, they swung presidential elections and really, and I think you could argue, set the tone of much of the uh, sentiment across the country. Of course, in the 1960s, there were uh, acting troops and uh, different forms of personifying uh, the typically left, leftist anti-Vietnam uh, uh, ideology, but nonetheless, they were in every major city. Uh, do you have a couple of suggestions, Laura, of what the average person who's just bursting with ideas and, and knowledge and they need some form of catharsis, but maybe they don't feel like they can go on camera on YouTube and maybe they're not the greatest writers, uh, some other ideas perhaps so people can get involved? Well, there's always undercover, right? That's how I started out. I, I started my career doing undercover journalism with Project Veritas for three years. So even though I am, you know, a citizen journalist and some people look at me as, you know, one of the leading voices in the, you know, citizen journalist or the conservative citizen journalist movement, I'm still not 100% comfortable on camera either. And, you know, I'm not 100% polished as well, but I don't think it really matters, right? Because 
it's not so much about being polished and being able to read a script perfectly like these mainstream media pundits do on TV. A lot of people just like, you know, the human um, element of, you know, imperfection. And I think the content speaks for itself. So if you're just filming something or whether you're providing commentary, video in itself is just very powerful. So um, if you're not comfortable, you could just do the undercover um, journalism or just film videos without narrating if that makes you feel comfortable just make sure you follow uh, state recording laws because each state has different recording laws but also I would encourage people who maybe don't think they're good on camera to just practice go to events start talking to people start uh, periscoping uh, go to political rallies um, talk to yourself right run scripts uh, I can't even begin to explain how many times I've, you know, like just talked to myself and gone over scripts in my head and how I would phrase things or how I would um, carry out a script if I was in person making a video, and it, it does help you. Um, so there's a lot of different techniques, but, you know, I think that each person has different elements of their personality or their character that makes what they do unique and that draws, you know, people into them and... Uh, you have to just find um, kind of like your own niche and what works for you. Laura, uh, let me ask you this. Do you work better uh, free-flowing or with scripts when you're doing your reporting? Well, there's always an element of planning, but I'm a very spontaneous, free-flowing person. So a lot of the work I do is just very spontaneous, and I never know what's going to happen. I never know what's going to happen when I go to, go to an event and Hillary Clinton's there. I don't know if I'm going to get thrown out by Secret Service or detained or if someone's going to recognize me. So I have a plan, for example, and I try to execute my script, and I think of a question that I'm going to ask, um, like when I confronted Linda Sarsour and um, Anderson Cooper as well, but you never know what's going to happen. Um, for example, when I went to uh, the Shakespeare play in New York, I thought I was just going to stand up and disrupt the play and talk about um, how wrong it was to promote assassination porn, but I ended up getting a front row seat. So I decided, well, why not just storm the stage? So you never know like what the situation is going to present you with. You never know who you're going to run into. I mean, you could go to the grocery store and run into a senator. You could go to um, an event and you know, run into Mayor de Blasio. That's happened to me before, too. So it's always good to just kind of think about these things in your head beforehand as well so that you are prepared in case you do run into these people. Because for me, at least, it happens more often than not that I run into individuals randomly. Well, thanks for that answer. And I've tried to do scripts, but I find that that's just, um, for me, basically impossible. So maybe a few notes, but mostly... Uh, the freestyle is the way to go, but I'd like to, to get other people's, uh, preferences when it, when it comes to that. Uh, Laura, kind of switching gears here, I want to get your opinion on a few things. One, the Trump-Bannon feud that we see in the White House. Also, there was a fire at the Hillary Clinton home in New York today, and there are many questions as to that. And I saw on your Twitter feed that the Clintons have a history of house fires. Do you want to go over that? Yeah, so I just think it's really funny that the same day that there's this massive feud between Trump and Bannon, and one day after Donald Trump tweets about how he wants the DOJ to crack down on Hillary, Huma, and Comey, and then literally less than 24 hours after it was announced that Comey tainted the email investigation, right, that they found corruption within Comey's investigation, Hillary Clinton's house in Chappaqua catches on fire. I mean, what are the chances of that, right? I And, and look... Maybe a fire did happen, but just given the history of the Clintons, and if you look at how deceptive they are and, 
you know, how they've tried to destroy evidence. They've smashed hard drives. They've broken Blackberries with hammers and, you know, used bleach bit. They, they have a history of trying to destroy evidence. So I don't think it's too far-fetched to wonder whether or not Hillary Clinton set her own house on fire. Because if you look at the history, the Clintons, this is their third house fire. There was a fire, you can, you can look at the details, I provided all the links in the news stories on my Twitter page, but there was a house fire in Hope, Arkansas, at Bill Clinton's uh, childhood residence, um, another fire in Arkansas, and then just today in Chappaqua. And I, I live 10 minutes away from their house in Chappaqua, so I'm very familiar with the area. And, you know, it's a very nice area, lots of security, um, you know, multi-million dollar homes, and you know, their house is very secluded from other people, right? It's, it's blocked off. There's, there's fences, there's security. So it's not like somebody could just light a fire. Um, someone had to have started a fire or, you know, something caused the fire. But I find it to be very strange that they've had literally three house fires in the course of three years. Yeah, the numbers there are pretty strange. And uh, a lot of what you just said went through my head when I first saw the reports, but then I thought about it a little bit. Okay, one, would they do this for insurance money? Uh, this is from a, a criminal cabal, mafia-style family that has siphoned billions of dollars through their foundation just in the Haiti earthquake uh, robbery alone. I find it hard to believe that they're going to do anything for the insurance money. I've also seen people uh, say that they're destroying evidence, which... Sounds about right for the Hillary Clinton crew. I just don't imagine they still have, you know, all this evidence in their house, um, you know, a year after the presidential election and all the things that went down. It does seem strange to me, the, the frequency, but, you know, maybe when you own 50 homes uh, in the U.S. alone, having three house fires in three years is not that odd. But I don't know what to make of it, and I just thought it was interesting that you also had the history of those house fires documented on Twitter there, but I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. <laughs> well, Joe, I want to jump in quickly and remind our listeners and viewers that they also stole furniture yeah, and flatware true. and dishes from the White House. That's true. Um, do you remember Joe? Uh, who the who the guest was? <laughs> You're right, John. It I, I know. Isn't even. that crazy? Do you remember who the guest was? Uh, I think it was maybe six to eight weeks ago. Who said that? In their opinion, both Bill and Hillary Clinton have like a perpetual. Poverty psychosis. Yes, yes. And uh, Laura, we'll hand that to you. Yeah, well, they're they're what in the words of Hillary Clinton, they they always think they're what dead broke. Yeah, you you have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank and you're dead broke. No. I mean, they're just so out of touch with reality and they don't understand like the real struggles of Americans. They don't know what it means to be dead broke, right? When you're dead broke, you don't walk around with twelve thousand dollar Armani jackets. When you're dead broke, you're not. You know, flying on private jets with billionaires and, you know, hanging out with dictators wearing, you know, millions of dollars worth of accessories. And th- these people are just so out of touch. So, and it's not even just the, the Clintons. It's all of these, you know, elitist establishment Democrat types who really are just all in it for the money. Um, you know, you look at de Blasio, for example. I'm, I'm from New York, so I know, uh, you know, I'll use him as an example. He just gave himself a huge salary, right? A 15% increase in a salary that is greater than uh, the minimum wage in New York. So all of these people, I mean, they have so much money, but they're always, they're out to get more money at the sake of others. And it, it does make you wonder if it was for insurance money or if they're trying to destroy um, evidence. But you just got to ask, like, do, do they not have enough money? Like, how much more corruption and fraud? Like, how many 
how many more, um, you know, like, you know, speeches, like five, they're getting paid $500,000 per speech. How many more of these exuberant, um, speech fees and, you know, these shady business deals are they going to conduct to just fill their bank accounts? Do these people not have enough money? <laughs> well, they can send a check this way, and as much as I dislike them, I would probably go ahead and cash it. Uh, Laura, I'd like to switch gears here. We've got, uh, I guess about six, seven minutes left with you this evening. QAnon. Okay, this has been, I would say, it's been the biggest uh, Internet phenomenon that I can recall. Uh, by the way, before I forget, I want to give you props and also uh, another regular Hagman guest, Jack Posobiec. Uh, you definitely made headlines at that at that play, and rightfully so. Uh, but QAnon, uh, Laura, I'm just going to hand it to you, carte blanche. What is your take on QAnon, uh, and, and is there a takedown coming? You know, it's... It's interesting. I don't really post a lot about it. I, I look at it. I think it's interesting. I think that, um, that, you know, a lot of the posts there, see, some of the stuff I find it to be credible and then other stuff I don't find to be credible. So, um, I think that, uh, and look, I'm not an expert on it, but I'll just give an example. Like some of the stuff they were talking about was the, um, possibility of like the Saudi prince in Las Vegas, right? And you kept on seeing the QN and stuff attached to it. And I personally just don't think that that is what happened. I don't think that the Saudi prince was in Las Vegas at the time of the shooting. And I, if you have billions of dollars like these princes do, why would you be walking through the hallway of the Tropicana? Right. Right. The Tropicana is not exactly like a very fancy or expensive hotel in Las Vegas. And if I was a billionaire prince, I would not be staying or walking through the Tropicana. So some of those things you know, do have credence, but then other things I kind of brush off because just given my own background of Vegas and my own experience being there, I just don't find them to be credible. You know, I do think there is some Saudi influence given the fact that the Saudis own the top five floors of Mandalay Bay. But, you know, this is just an example of how, you know, I don't I don't believe everything I see that's posted regarding QAnon. No, I, I agree with you there, Laura. I have some major problems with um, some of the things that are said and we did a, an hour piece on this last night uh, with another YouTuber who uh, came on to kind of shed some light on it and that led me to do some heavy reading through that PDF that was that has all the information in there and I just it, you know, something doesn't sit right with me I would love for you know all this to be true I would love yeah. for you know to see these people taken down I just don't Whatever it is about this guy or whoever's doing this just doesn't ring true or authentic to me, and it just seems like there are huge holes or lies um, in there with a bunch of things that are true or, or relatively true, and I just have a bad, weird feeling about it. And I think that a lot of people are so hopeful and wishing that this is true that they're falling into the trap. And I see so many people taking what the, this cue puts out and repeating it as though it is a fact and already been established when so much yeah. has been unable to be you verified. Have to be really careful. You have to be really careful when these things gain a lot of traction. And I'm not saying that all of it is completely false, but you don't know who these people are. You don't know who these people are that are pushing this information and whether they're disinformation agents or misinformation agents and who's who they're working for or who they're pushing information for. And I say this with anything that you see on the Internet, right? You should always do research as well. Even if you, you know, like you trust your source and you're confident in it or you see something and you really want to believe it and it 
fits your narrative, you should always research it yourself because you don't know what type of agenda people have in pushing the information that they're pushing. And so that's why I find it to be somewhat concerning because um, I first became aware of it when people started, you know, tagging me in the post about the Saudi prince theory. And just based on my own, like, sources and, you know, information I have regarding the um, the, the the guest registry at Mandalay Bay and, uh, you know, just what I know about Tropicana, it just doesn't make sense. So, uh, you know, I would just encourage people to do their own research and, you know, don't don't believe everything you see online, even if some of it is true, because... Um, you know, that's how people are able to quickly label others as conspiracy theorists is when other people kind of like go overboard and maybe hijack a hashtag or, mm-hmm. um, you know, sometimes people with larger platforms start, um, spewing this stuff and twisting the narrative or twisting the facts and then it becomes discredited. Yeah. And that's one of the big issues I've seen with this whole QAnon thing is, uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the problems lie with some of the problems lie with what he claims or they claim or whatever that Q is claims. But a, a majority of the problems come from what other people report about it, and then exactly. there's a huge disconnect there. I don't even know what to believe because there's so much misinformation. I mean, I'm seeing, I'm telling you, I get tagged in Q and M posts a million times mm-hmm. a day, and a lot of it is just different, and some of it is outrageous, and you know. Yeah. There's some different people who are posting different things with the hashtag, and then it becomes discredited because if you have all these people using the same hashtag and they're posting misinformation, then no one's going to take it seriously. No, you're absolutely right. Laura, we got about two, two and a half minutes left in this segment. Um, what do you think we expect to see in 2018? Do you believe Donald Trump will continue to have a... a uh, be in office, I guess. We'll just start there. Uh, throughout 2018, do you think the economy will do well? What do you What do you think the status of the media will be at the end of the year? Any predictions or or ideas of what to expect? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Donald Trump is doing a great job. I mean, I think it's going to be a very exciting year, just given what we've already seen. Um, I think that the media is losing ground. I think that citizen journalism is going to be um, much more impactful, especially with uh, the 2018 races coming up. I think there's going to be major political shakeups. But um, if anything, I think that the world of the the world of journalism, the world of media, is going to significantly transform. And we already saw that with the election of Donald Trump. I mean, this was a social media driven election, a social media campaign in which, uh, for once, really, the people really had a say. It wasn't the establishment elite controlling the narrative or controlling the outcome of the elections as it usually is. And that's only increasing um, with the rise of more social media platforms, with the rise of more citizen journalists. And, you know, Donald Trump really, as a president, um, has restored a lot of power to the people. I mean, I feel like a lot of people feel very hopeful under Donald Trump's presidency. They feel empowered. And uh, they feel like their voice matters more so than under any other presidency. I don't know if you agree, but that's just my perception. No, I absolutely do agree. And I think we see uh, the evidence of that in the confidence in our economy and in the, the retail markets and the stock markets. And I think uh, that consumer confidence uh, is equal and, and shows the confidence in the president. One last, One last real quick question. Do you think Donald Trump, his uh, presidency, him being in the White House in this upcoming midterm election will help or hurt the Republicans? 
I think both. I think I think it's going to help because we have a Republican president, but also, too, I think the Republicans need to be more serious because a lot of Republicans tend to think, oh, well, we have a, we have Donald Trump in the White House, so we don't have to work as hard, and so they're putting up a lot of these horrible candidates, or they're not really putting forth strong candidates, and we're going to lose, we're going to lose the House, we're going to lose the Senate if we don't put forth strong conservative candidates. Just because Donald Trump is in the White House doesn't mean that, you know, everything is going to be okay. So I would really encourage Republicans and, uh, you know, conservatives really to push for strong candidates because um, we can't really afford um, to lose lose seats. And I think that's going to happen if people don't get their act together, which we've already seen happen. Well, Laura, I'd like to float this idea. Laura Loomer and Jack Posobiec for Congress 2018. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Again, follow Laura Loomer on Twitter at Laura Loomer and bookmark her website, lauraloomer.us. Support her through her website. The links are there for PayPal and uh, Freestart. Not sure if I got that right. We'll be right back after this. Don't go anywhere. Final hour on this Wednesday edition of the Hagman Report. Today is January 3rd, 2018, a Wednesday, and we are going to be joined by John Howler of Fellowship Bible Chapel in just a few moments. I uh, want to hit a couple of pieces before we bring him on. One, there is uh, some pushback at Breitbart to Steve Bannon. Breitbart readers blast Bannon for betraying Trump. And this is an article on the Daily Caller that goes over the uh, a number of claims on uh, claims a number of comments on Breitbart that it shows that the Breitbart readers are sticking behind Trump and uh, really going after Bannon. And many are saying, you know, we haven't heard from Bannon. Why haven't we heard from him if this was not true? What he said, don't you think he'd be out there issuing a retraction or issuing a statement saying as much? But uh, many people on Breitbart are wondering what is going on there. Also, I thought this was. Um, pretty sickening. Meryl Streep at attacks Melania and Ivanka Trump for being silent on sexual assault. Actress Meryl Streep, who starred in multiple Harvey Weinstein films, is attacking Melina and Ivanka Trump for being silent on sexual assault allegations. This is uh, really interesting. It goes on to talk about the interview she did with the New York Times when she was asked about the outcry over her silence on Harvey Weinstein, who she once referred to as God at an award ceremony, and she uh, it goes on, they went on to ask her why she was so silent, and what she first says was that she doesn't have a Twitter thing, or a handle or whatever, I don't have Facebook she claimed she was clueless about Weinstein's rampant sexual abuse of women calling him a champion of really great work, Streep doubled down on the claim that she had no knowledge of Weinstein's behavior, and then again when asked about her silence went on to say I don't want to hear about the silence of me I want to hear about the silence of Melina Trump I want to hear from her she has so much that's valuable to say and so does Ivanka I want her to speak out now now one thing that she didn't take into account Ivanka Trump uh, has also been a very outspoken advocate for sexual abuse victims 
as well as Melania. But again, she is trying to shift the blame as her quote there again is, I don't want to hear about the silence of me. I want to hear about the silence of Melina and Ivanka Trump. And she says that she's wearing uh, a black to the next award show as a uh, protest against sexual assault. But there's interesting billboards popping up all, all across L.A. with a picture of Meryl Streep next to Harvey Weinstein with a red banner across her eyes that says she knew. So there is some pushback to her. But, you know, just another elitist, entitled Hollywood satanic celebrity who is just um, so far gone. I don't know what else to say about her. She's a, a despicable human being, uh, to say the least. But <laughs> Well, uh, Meryl Streep, Joe, I wonder if she'll wear black if the next uh, award ceremony she's attending will in fact be President Donald Trump's award ceremony for uh, the best fake news platforms uh, of 2017. And God bless President Trump for uh, actually putting forth something like that. Additionally, uh, if if any of our listeners or viewers are interested in Meryl Streep, go back about five, six weeks. Uh, Alex Jones did a series of interviews with Mike Cernovich, and Cernovich le- levied some very serious allegations against Meryl Streep. And I'll leave it at that. And, and just real quick, I don't know how many people saw the TMZ video of Paul Sorvino. He was asked about, uh, I believe it was his daughter, whose career was uh, really destroyed by Weinstein after she refused his sexual advances, and that career never took off. And Sorvino was asked about uh, by TMZ what he thought about it, and he said he is going to murder Harvey Weinstein if he ever saw him on the street, or his words were, I'm going to kill him. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But again, um, you know, we've seen this craziness ongoing for months on end and uh, the Me Too movement really taking off. And it's it's uh, it's pretty crazy. But anyway, we have our guest with us, uh, John Howler, and he is of the Fellowship Bible Chapel. And you can find that on YouTube as well as uh, on the, the website, fbchapel.com. Uh, John, welcome back to the Hagman Report. It's good to be good to be with you again. Well, it's great to have you, John. Where do you want to start tonight? We didn't get a chance to talk off air. Well, you know, well, just let me make a comment. I, I have been listening to the show tonight, and uh, good show, by the way. Um, just a comment on Meryl Streep. She's a big, fat hypocrite. Um, she was the one who stood up, as I recall, and defended um, Roman Polanski. Oh, yeah. And uh, who is who's not just a suspected uh pedophile he's actually a convicted one and she was one of the ones that stood up and applauded that he should be brought back so i you know i think what i don't know what happens when people spend a lot of time out there in california i think they uh sort of lose their mind a little bit and um they get caught up in the system so uh that's just an opening comment and i i mentioned to to john that um um, first of all, I, I saw your, I saw Doug when I first, uh, uh, logged on here tonight and, um, I had, I thought I should, and then you guys are wearing ties and everything. I thought I needed to run upstairs and, uh, try to find something a little bit more appropriate to wear for the, uh, atmosphere. Oh, no. Right. <laughs> and uh, I feel like I'm, I'm woefully underdressed, but, um, you know, uh, Joe, I don't know if you remember, it was uh, just a little over three years ago that you guys were just down the street um, from where I live here in Dublin, Ohio. Oh, yeah. 
at the uh, at the Prophecy Forum conference that we did. And if you remember, we had a bit of a cold snap uh, during that conference, but it's nothing compared to what uh, what we have now. And I feel for you guys up there in Pennsylvania with your five feet of snow. I um, yeah, it's uh, actually had- like uh, seven feet now. We got eighty three inches since <laughs> Christmas Eve. And none of it has melted, and they're calling for about another 12. But, yeah, that bitter cold is, is ripping across the country. It's a pretty amazing to watch. <clears throat> yeah, it's been, it's been incredible. And I had to, I finally, I, I bought a snowblower. We had 30 inches here a few years ago in Columbus, and I bought a snowblower, and um, I haven't used it for two years. <laughs> and uh, so I had to make sure it started. I When I bought it, my neighbor came over and said, I'll make a deal with you. I'll buy the gas and maintain it if you let me use it. And I said, well, okay, but you just have to do my drive first. So that's worked out pretty Of course, it takes them like five minutes with that thing. Uh, but if you want to come down and blow, borrow my snowblower, you're welcome to do it if you can get here. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank the, you for uh, that. And, yeah, it would have been a big help the last week, I tell you. Yeah, I also want to make just a couple comments. I mentioned this to John, then I have something I want to talk to out of the Bible, because I think that's what you guys asked me to do. Um, I've been following this. I saw you uh, ask Laura uh, some questions about the um, QAnon stuff that's been going around. Yeah. And I'm sure that you're like you. I, I don't think I get it as much as you do, but I get sent stuff by people all the time. And I share your concerns, I think, that you expressed at the end of the last hour about um, people just sort of accepting everything that's being said here is true. Uh, I'm very concerned about that. I've looked into it. It just doesn't add up to me, uh, and I have some concerns about it. Let me give you one example. I'm a, I'm a trial lawyer by profession. Uh, I was just, in fact, I was uh, got to get up about 4 o'clock in the morning and go in and finish up a new case I'm filing for one of the big uh, car manufacturers, hopefully in the next day or two. But um, there, I've seen these reports about 4,000 indictments, and then it's 9,000 indictments, then it's 10,000 indictments. And I'm I'm a little bit concerned about the the research that people are doing on that. I, I was involved. I was I don't know if I was lucky enough. Uh, or however you would describe it, to be involved in one of the largest uh, fraud trials ever investigated by the FBI. And I will say that in order to get an indictment, you've got to go to, a, and you probably know this, Joe, you've got to go to a grand jury. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it's a process. So in the case of the company, uh, I represent one of the executives of the company. Uh, when that company collapsed in... Uh, 2002, it was 32 months from the time of the collapse until the indictment was filed. It was a very long, involved process. They're eventually indicted or filed criminal informations against uh, 13 individuals, executives from the company and management personnel. Uh, I think 12 of them were eventually convicted uh, and served time in prison. But Everybody in town knew what was going on with regard to that investigation. Uh, even though grand jury proceedings themselves are secret and lawyers can't accompany their clients into a grand jury, everybody in town knew that there was a grand jury proceeding underway. And uh, 
I think the suggestion that there are 4,000 or 10,000 sealed indictments that have come down in two months on very complicated matters is a, just doesn't match up to reality, especially in view of the fact that if there were that many indictments coming down and there were that, there was that much activity at grand jury levels all over the country, there would be tremendous buzz about it in the legal community. And nobody's talking about it. And so I'm a little concerned when I see people just sort of running around saying, oh, you know, we've got uh, 10,000 sealed indictments. Uh, I I just don't buy it. Um, my interest was peaked a few months ago when the Washington Examiner had a report. Uh, remember when Manafort was indicted by Mueller's team uh, or as a result of the grand jury decision uh, based on the evidence presented by the Mueller team. And Manafort was indicted, and another guy were indicted on the same day, and I can't remember the other guy's name. But uh, Washington Examiner looked at the indictment, and then they went to PACER.gov, and they looked at the docket, and they found that between the Manafort case number and the uh, other guy's case number, there were four cases that involved sealed filings. And so the speculation in the Washington Examiner at the time was that these four indictments represent, uh, these are people that uh, they're going to roll over on, that Manafort and this other guy have rolled over on. Uh, they're going to bring in, uh, you know, Donald Trump Jr. or other people from the Trump administration. Uh, I went and I, I found those at the time. I went and looked at those case numbers because they're pretty easy to find on PACER if you know how to look. And I looked at the cases and all the cases had been unsealed at that time if they were a criminal case. But some of them were just civil cases that involved sealed filings. And I can tell you that, you know, I'm working on a case right now. I said I hope to file it in the next day or two. And we'll be asking the court to seal some of the filings there because it involves uh, confidential commercial information. So the way their search methodology that the people did to come up with 4,000 or 9,000 or 10,000 sealed indictments, I think their search methodology was a little bit flawed. I've also seen some reports where they listed some case numbers, and I went and looked at all those case numbers, and the interesting thing is that the cases are no longer sealed, or they were just cases that involved civil cases uh, or forfeiture cases that involved uh, sealed filings. Uh, but I will tell you from my own personal experience, I know that in the case of my client, the indictments were filed and sealed immediately by the court on a Friday, early on a Friday morning. Uh, the six or seven, I think it was seven people at that time that were indicted at one time, and they seal it because they don't want people to flee and, and run away. They were all arrested. Uh, six of them were arrested that day. One was out of town and didn't turn himself into Monday. So it wasn't until Monday that the indictments were unsealed so we could see what our clients were charged with. So I'm just saying that once the arrests take place, the indictments are unsealed. And I have not seen any indictments that match up to a lot of the things that I'm seeing uh, floating around. If these people were being arrested, the indictments would be unsealed. And so I'm a little bit concerned about some of the factual. That's just one example. But I spent a lot of time going through some of these uh, case numbers, and I just didn't see anything. So I, I share your concerns that uh, I hope that it's true. I mean, I'm like you. I I want bad people to uh, get what's coming to them. And some of the things that are alleged are pretty uh, atrocious. And so I want I want justice to be done. But I also think it's very important that citizen journalists and, and 
people like you and then people like me who who talk about the news at our church uh, in relation to Bible prophecy and that type of thing that uh, we try to be uh, factually accurate. Uh, I think that's uh, I think that's much better. It's, I think it's good to be cautious rather than just to uh, go running around out there to you know yeah uh, try to try to get clicks on your website. And, and I've seen some of the stuff and. And clearly, when some of the people are talking about the uh, criminal indictment process, uh, it's pretty clear they don't understand the process or uh, exactly what an indictment is or what an answer is to a civil complaint and what the legal effect of that is. Um, and, you know, I, I appreciate them trying to trying to be helpful, but I think we need to be cautious and careful because it doesn't uh, help us it doesn't help the cause, I guess, to uh, be putting out there things that are just um, sometimes right. crazy and, and, and unverifiable, yeah, right. uh, sensational, and we we see this, and that's one of the things that bothers me about this. And we we can get off this topic, but uh, again, you know, uh, from what I read in the in the PDF, there's lots of interesting research there, lots of important connections and. And things that are are stated there, but at the same time, it, it's riddled with these. Uh, I guess you could call them claims or questions that are inaccurate. You know, the Podesta's indicted. Uh, Podesta's plane has a military escort and it's being grounded. Watch the news; it's going to come. I mean, just there's things that don't sit right with me there, and I just yeah. it really bugs me to see people buying it hook, line, and sinker, and then attacking people like me or others just for asking for the proof of what they're claiming is true. And it, it, it just seems like a big trap. But, again, we hope it's right, but we're going to be skeptical uh, as we move forward here. John, I know you got a topic that you want to talk about. Um, I do. Okay. And uh, I'm going to try to share my screen here. I don't know if it will um, uh, show up or not, but um, let's give it a shot. Yeah, we see... Uh... We see what is that a castle, a temple? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about uh, if if people want to turn in their Bibles, uh, I'm gonna talk about a few Bible passages, but I'm mainly gonna focus on uh, a passage uh, Ezekiel chapter 23. It's it, this is one of my favorite talks. I I try to do it once a year, and it's it's been about a year since I uh, talked about this. Um, so Ezekiel chapter 23, you know, it's it's interesting that the the um, different the different passages in the in the Old Testament prophets, the major prophets like Jeremiah twenty three, Ezekiel twenty three, have a lot of really great teaching. And Jeremiah twenty three, Jeremiah says, uh, "Woe to the pastors." Um, that's the the main theme of that chapter. And uh, Jeremiah says, "You know, woe to the pastors who." Uh, don't tell or just give their people good news and just tell them that they have nothing to fear, that nothing bad is coming, because that's just not true. Uh, but Ezekiel chapter 23 talks about two sisters. But let me lead into it. Earlier this year, back in May, uh, my wife and I had an opportunity to go to Israel. And um, at the suggestion of some friends that had uh, made arrangements for the trip, uh, they hooked us up with a, um, a an archaeologist. Uh, named Joel Kramer. You can find his stuff at sourceflixflix.com. And also, if you just type in Joel Kramer in Israel and you want to learn a little bit about the archaeology, the things in archaeology that support the truth of the Bible, Joel's really one of the best uh, 
teachers that I had, and I took some archaeology, biblical archaeology classes back in college. And Joseph, Joseph Salt as they come, uh, because he's actually a biblical archaeologist that believes in the Bible. Uh, most of the biblical archaeologists seem to uh, spend their time tearing down the Bible. So as part of that suggestion, I, it, my initial reaction was I, I'd been to Israel a couple times, but I wanted to go to some of the places that we had been previously and just spend a little bit more time at. And, and Joel's response to me was, well, everybody goes there. Why don't we go someplace where you probably haven't been? So we, uh, in May, uh, late, uh, the latter part of May, uh, Pam and I got on a plane. We ended up in Tel Aviv. And the first morning that we were there, Joel took us down to Hebron. And what you see there on your screen is the uh, structure built by King Herod 2,000 years ago at uh, in Hebron over what's known as the Cave of Machpelah. Uh, the Cave of Machpelah is, and this this structure uh, Joe and John stands almost today exactly as it did 2,000 years ago. Uh, the the uh, minaret, of course, uh, at the top has been added, as has the stone at top. But the large stones that you see at the bottom of the structure and the steps leading up to it, those are all Herodian stones, it's, and it's verified. And this building has stood there for 2,000 years through earthquakes, uh, many earthquakes, some of them rather severe, uh, this Herod guy really know how how to build. And Herod built uh, at three sites that he considered to be holy. He wanted to build pilgrimage sites for the Jews, for the Hebrews to go to. He built at a place called Mamre, which is also in Hebron, and that's where Abraham, it says uh, Abraham met with God by the great oaks of Mamre, uh, where he got the promise that he would have a son that would through whom the, the nations of the earth would be blessed. Um he built at Hebron, and of course he built in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. And he built here at Machpelah. And I think it's pretty well verified. Just to give you a little bit of history, this building, as you see, uh, has stood there for, as I said, for 2,000 years, over 2,000 years. Um, the That's amazing. It, 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 it was always a holy site to the Jews, but of course Islam invaded uh, that area uh, in the late 600s AD and took over the area and for at, at some point the Jews were restricted from going inside the structure for 700 years until 50 years ago in 1967 for the 67 war they were allowed to go but they were only allowed to go uh, up to the um, uh, if you see this little yellow sign here in the right just at the top of these stairs yeah, uh, up here by the building. That was where they they were allowed to go there to pray. But for for seven hundred years, that's as close as they could get. Now, what the significance is, and I don't have time to go into it, and it's not really the topic that I want to talk about. But this is a verified site that contains a a biblically significant thing, and this is the land uh, Abram Abraham went and bought land to bury his wife Sarah. He bought a cave. He bought the cave in the field of a, of Machpelah. It's verified, and it's it's not that it's just mentioned once or twice in the Old Testament. It's mentioned uh, many many times throughout Genesis. And this is where Abraham is buried, that Sarah is buried, his Abraham and Sarah's son Isaac, his wife Rebecca, and then Isaac and Rebecca's son Jacob, 
and uh, Jacob's uh, one wife, Leah. His other wife is buried in uh, Bethlehem. Rachel is buried in Bethlehem. But in uh, many years ago, there is a um, a um, this is having trouble advancing. There we go. Hebron today is probably the most divided city in Israel. Uh, in 19, I think it was about 1993 or 1994, a Jewish zealot went into the mosque at the cave of Machpelah. Uh, on the top there, you go up separate steps. One side there's a synagogue, the other side there is a mosque. Uh, they're kept completely separate. You have to go through checkpoints to get to either one. And, uh, he went into the mosque side and, uh, with a, a, uh, automatic rifle and shot and killed about 27 Arabs and wounded over a hundred. And when that happened, uh, Israel came in and said, okay, we've got to, uh, separate the people here. There was a small Jewish settlement. It's a fairly large Arab city. It's where probably one of the most radical groups of Arabs live. Uh, and that was done purposely by the uh, Arabs back in the early 1920s. They located them there, and there was a major massacre of Jewish people in Hebron in about 1928. There were about uh, 70 Jews that were just slaughtered there. So it, it's, but today this this is a picture of no man's land, and so today you have this uh, this structure in the middle of this this city where. Uh, you just have um, it, there's there's no place that's more divided. Uh, this is looking from the ancient tell at Hebron over towards the cave of Machpelah. This is uh, we're standing where uh, this tell is. This is where David would have reigned when he was in um, uh, king in Israel. He reigned there in Hebron for seven seven years. Uh, very historic site, very significant archaeologically. The structure itself is just magnificent. This is the mosque inside. And back in the, this man on the left in the video, uh, back in the early 1980s, he and some other young guys snuck down through this entrance, went down into the cave and actually found bones there. I, I don't think in my mind there's no doubt that this is actually the cave where Abraham, uh, and his family were buried, the patriarchs. Wow. There's a Jewish, there's a Jewish tradition that it actually uh, this cave was uh, also the burial place of uh, some other Bible characters named uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, that this was uh, the place where the gate, the the restriction was put up so Adam and Eve could not get back into the Garden of Eden. That's a Jewish tradition. Uh, it's a it's a fascinating site. If you ever go to Israel, I would highly recommend that you try whatever you can do to get to Hebron, to Mamre, to Tel Remedia, to uh, the Cave of Machpelah. Over on the tell, there's a staircase there, and the staircase that you walk down as you're going out onto the tell, you, you can't get all the way up on the tell because of the um, the division there. I mean, it's it's no man's land. There's a Palestinian flag on one side and an Israeli flag on the other, and the soldiers are patrolling up there, and our guide says, boy, I hope they don't throw rocks at my car today. And I'm like, well, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean throw rocks at your car? You mean do they only throw rocks at your car when you're away from your car or do they throw rocks at you when you're getting to your car and he kind of laughed uh, they usually leave American you know if they're pretty sure you're Americans um, they'll leave you alone and I'm you know close to six foot four so uh, there's not too many 
people in, in Israel that are my size, at least height-wise. So, but it's a fascinating place in the staircase there. To give you some idea of age, Abram would have come through, let's say roughly 2000 BC when he came to Hebron and bought the cave and then buried Sarah. Um, there's a staircase there that would lead up to the gate, would have led up to the gates of the city. One of the oldest staircases found archaeologically. And in that, uh, that staircase is, was 700 years old when Abraham came to the area. So it gives you a little idea when you stand there and you walk down steps that people would have walked on 4,700 years ago. Uh, it kind of makes like the history of a country like the United States seem like it just happened yesterday. So I only want to say that is because there's so much to learn, so much to glean from the Bible in terms of archaeology and, and, and the truth. And I'll, I'll try to spread this. After, and, and the Bible says in 1 Corinthians that the things that happened to the Old Testament Hebrews and Jews happened so that we, they were examples for us so that we shouldn't do what they did. And there's these stories in the Bible, and they tell us this tremendous story about uh, a pattern of apostasy and false teaching and false worship that occurred in Israel uh, <clears throat> at the time of the divided kingdom. Uh, Saul was the first king, then David, then, of course, Solomon. And then after Solomon died, the kingdom divided. And the kingdom divided between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, a lot of people uh, were very upset with the uh, apostasy in the northern kingdom. They um, moved to the south. The northern kingdom, uh, to give you some idea biblically, uh, this is a sort of a 3D shot of Mount Hermon to the to the right, one of the more significantly uh, biblical mountains. And at the base of that is Caesarea Philippi. That's where Jesus took his disciples and said, "Who do men say that? Who do you say that? Who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am?" And then over to the just a, a couple miles away is uh, the city of Dan. The tell uh, the tell is a historical archaeological mound. Tel Dan and the nature preserve that's there. It's a very lush area. It's one of the headwaters of the Jordan. And this picture here, and I'll talk more about it in just a minute, is the Tel at Hebron. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a great thing. When the kings divided, Rehoboam and, and his descendants in the southern kingdom of Judah, Jeroboam and his descendants in the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom, there were some good kings in the, in the kingdom of Judah, but there were no good kings in Israel. All of them were evil. We know that there are, um, you know, kings like Ahab and, and that sort of thing. And Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, Ahab built the capital of Samaria. Uh, another significant city in the northern kingdom is Shechem. There's another kingdom, a uh, city called Bethel. And so here we see that in First uh, Kings chapter 12, Jeroboam built Shechem, and um, this was in Mount Ephraim, and you and you can go to Shechem today. And we went to Shechem, and you can see a stone there that Joshua erected to, as a memorial to what they had done when they came in and conquered the land. And then uh, on the southern edge of the kingdom is Bethel. When you stand at Bethel, uh, you can see this. You can see like the Mount of Olives and parts of Jerusalem from Bethel. There's a city called Ai that's very close 
it's a very, you know, that's where Joshua, uh, conquered the king and they, they says they buried the king and they heaped stones on the temple. And when they excavated it a number of years ago, uh, I is about two miles to the east of Bethel. It, they found, uh, eight meter tall pile of rocks over the temple portion, just as the Bible said. And it was a city that had not been occupied since. So there were two cities though that uh, Jeroboam built and I'm going to I'm going to skip through this a little bit. But what Jeroboam did was he was sort of uh, uh set himself up as the um, sort of the priest of the of the northern kingdom and he he built holy places. He he built a holy place at Bethel and he built one at Dan. And it tells us in uh Jeremiah that uh or I'm sorry in 1 Kings chapter 12 that Jeroboam did this because he was afraid that if the people uh, had to go continue to go to Jerusalem to worship, they would be difficult to manage. They would want to reunite the kingdom, and he wanted to protect his kingdom. So what he did was he put he built a holy place. Uh, it says here, whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said to them, "It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem." It's sort of like the first seeker sensitive pastor. I, you know, we're going to have a drive-through church, essentially. So we're going to put one here. And what he did was he put one in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. And today you can go to Dan uh, there in the northern kingdom, and you can see this is a, a uh, artist's uh, representation of what Dan would have looked like at the time. You can see the altar there in the foreground. And today you can go to Dan... Um, they're just outside of Caesarea Philippi. To give you some idea of geography, it's about uh, probably 40 miles from Damascus and about 50 miles from Beirut. It's in the far northern regions. It's right on the border of Israel. This is Caesarea Philippi. Of course, that's where Jesus went. This is this area of uh, Caesarea Philippi and Dan is the headwaters, one of the uh, main sources of the uh, Jordan River. It's it's a very lush green uh, landscape, not what you would expect, especially if you've been down in the southern part of Israel. So here at Dan, uh, this is the Tel of Dan. Uh, it's probably about a half mile uh, east to west. Uh, in the upper part of the picture, you can see uh, this yellow line. That, back in 1967, was the uh, border between Israel and Syria. And to this day, you can still see on the northern part of the Tel, you can see where the soldiers came in in the 67 war and dug foxholes. That little town that you see up at the top of the picture is a town that straddles the Israel-Lebanon border. So you're right up there in the midst of where all this potential conflict is happening. I think Ezekiel 38 and 39 wars will happen in this region. So Dan is, Dan is at the far north uh, portion of the Tel. Also at the tell, in the, this red circle, is a gate. And this gate is the oldest gate that they found in archaeological, in the world in archaeology. Um, and it is pretty certain, it's a, it's a pretty unique structure, but it's pretty certain that this is the gate that Abraham, or Abram at the time, would have walked through when he came through the area. The city wasn't called Dan at that time. But, and there's also this uh, wall, this city gate area that was built 
uh, on the southern part of the tell by Ahab, King Ahab. You can go to Samaria, you can see where Ahab was buried. They found his tomb there. Uh, this was the Tel Dan Stele, and it, it says that this was found at Tel Dan, and it mentions in, in there the house of David. It's the first place that they found uh, David mentioned outside of the Old Testament. So this is the, the gate that Ahab, uh, they've done a little bit of reconstruction there. But the most significant part of the tell is this area on the north part of the tell, which is the holy place. And you can go to this place today. There are the foxholes that they dug back in 1967 uh, during the war, uh, the Six-Day War with the uh, Arab countries. And in the midst of the tell is the altar. And it has been, I think, verified to virtually 100% certainty that this is the place where Jeroboam, this is the, the, you see the foundations today of the place where Jeroboam built the altar. And then just above it is the high place where he would have erected the golden calf. So that you see the altar there on the left and then the high place there on the right. And it's, so you can go and stand on the foundations of the actual altar that Jeroboam built. That's pretty but fascinating. Yeah, but what Jeroboam did was Jeroboam uh, engaged in false worship. So understand that, that prophecy in the Bible is a pattern. Uh, so it repeats itself. Uh, and so the the apostasy that happened in the northern kingdom repeated itself later in the southern kingdom of Judah. But the southern kingdom of Judah is also a picture of the apostasy of the church, and that's one of the concerns uh, as a teacher and a, and a pastor in a, in a church or assistant pastor in a church, that there is a, a, a growing apostasy, a growing acceptance of false teaching in the church today. And we can learn a lot about the examples that are given. And one of the examples are two sisters. And so let's just look at what Ezekiel chapter 23 says, and then if I have time, I'll tie it in a little bit to what happened in the southern kingdom of Judah. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, there were um, there were two women, the daughters of one mother, and they committed whoredoms in Egypt and committed whoredoms in their youth. There were their breasts pressed, and, and they bruised the teats of their virginity. Now, I apologize if people are offended by talking about whores and other things, but uh, if you have a problem with that, take it up with uh, Ezekiel when you see him in heaven someday, because that's what he says. And so what he talks about is the fact that the northern kingdom of Israel never had a good king. They were all evil. None of them walked with the Lord. They... the the Jewish people, the Hebrews, when they were in the Holy Land, they, for example, they, they were, when they, when they were taken into captivity in Egypt, they committed whoredom there. They weren't faithful. They didn't stay close to the Lord. It says then the sisters were named Aholah and her sister Aholivah. Uh, and they were mine and they bear sons and daughters. Thus were their names. Samaria is Aholah and Jerusalem is Aholivah. So there were these two sisters. Uh, one represented, and this is a story, one represented the northern kingdom of Israel, which had its capital at Samaria, and it was built by Omri and Ahab. That's Ohalah. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, the other sister represents the southern kingdom. Her name is Ohalibah. Uh, so Samaria is Ahalah, or the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, or Judah, is Ahalibah. 
And so it's going to tell the story, and it's going to go through, and I, I don't think I'm going to spend a lot of time going through. You can read Ezekiel chapter 23, and what you'll see is that um, Aholibah and was unfaithful. Uh, and let me get here to the uh, passage. And Aholibah played the harlot when she was mine. And she doted on her lovers, on the Assyrians, her neighbors, which were clothed with blue, captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men. So Assyria was a, you know, as we know, a very evil kingdom. Uh, some of the worst uh, forms of execution that had been devised by man were devised by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were uh, based in Nineveh, which is modern-day Mosul. We've read a lot, heard a lot about Mosul and ISIS and some of the horrific things that were going on that have been going over there on there over the last few years and the it this is this is the the sentence of these people it goes on to tell us that Allah she didn't learn her lesson in Egypt she didn't learn her lessons uh, with the Assyrians and eventually what happened was that in around 721 BC the Assyrian army came down and they took over the northern kingdom it says, these discovered her nakedness. They took her sons and daughters and slew her with the sword, and she became famous among women, for they had executed judgment upon her. God always brings judgment. And we know the, the famous passage, judgment always begins at the house of the Lord. So Ahalah was a whore, spiritual whore, an adulteress, and God judged Ahalah. But the same thing happened to Ahalivah, because it talks about Ohalavah was even more corrupt in her inordinate uh, love than she, than her sister. And in her whoredoms, more than her sister in her whoredoms, she doted upon the Assyrians. Even though she knew what the Assyrians had done to the northern kingdom, she still played a sp- spiritual harlot. The southern kingdom played the spiritual harlot with Assyria. Um, and then the Babylonian, and then it says in that she increased her whoredoms when she saw men portrayed upon the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed with vermilion, girded with girdles upon their loins, exceeding in dyed attire. They were attractive, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. They came in, and when they started to come in, the southern kingdom, represented by Ahalivah, did not remain faithful to the Lord. She lusted after them. The Babylonians came unto her bed of love, and they defiled her with their whoredom, and she was polluted with them, and her mind was alienated from the Lord. So the Babylonians came in, starting in 606 B.C., and then finished the taking away the southern kingdom into captivity. In uh, 586 B.C., they destroyed the temple, and then uh, the prophets Ezekiel wrote from Babylon... And Daniel, of course, was involved in the government of Babylon and then in the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, and so the the point goes on is that the the southern kingdom of Judah, whereas the northern kingdom didn't have the holy places, the holy place of Jerusalem, they didn't have the temple. The, so the northern kingdom went off to worship these other gods. Their king led them astray, and they went along with it. But the southern kingdom of Judah had more advantages. You know, they, they were, they had the temple, they had, David was one of their kings, they had righteous kings, 
from time to time, but they still did not remain faithful. And they were warned uh, by Jeremiah and others that the Lord had had it. I've had it with your whoredoms. I've had it with your spiritual unfaithfulness, and I'm going to judge you. And in fact, what you find, it says here, God was mad. He says, and I will set my jealousy against thee, and they shall deal furiously with thee. They shall take away thy nose and thine ears, and thy remnant shall fall by the sword, and they shall take thy sons and daughters. The residue shall be devoured by the fire. They also shall strip thee out of thy clothes and take away thy fair jewels. So God says your spiritual unfaithfulness, your spiritual adultery, your spiritual wickedness, I'm going to judge it. I'm not going to tolerate it anymore. And they shall deal with thee hatefully, he says in Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 29, and shall take away all thy labor and shall leave thee naked and bare, and the nakedness of thy whoredoms shall be discovered, both thy lewdness and thy whoredoms. I will do these things unto thee, he's speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah, because thou hast gone a-whoring after the heathen, and because thou art polluted with her idols. Thou hast walked in the way of thy sister, therefore I will give her cup into thine hand. So you you saw what happened to your sister, and you didn't learn your lessons. And so this judgment is brought on the southern kingdom of Judah. In Ezekiel chapter 8, if you want to flip over there, if you have your Bible, I'll have this, the verses on the screen. Ezekiel is taken from where he is in Babylon, and he's given a vision of what's going on in the temple. And it says here, And it came to pass in the sixth year of the sixth month, and the fifth day of the month, uh, as I sat in mine house, and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord God there fell upon me. Then I beheld, and lo, a likeness of, as the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his loins, even downward fire." and from his loins even upward as the appearance of brightness as the color of amber. And what we see is that he is taken from, in a vision, from Babylon back to Jerusalem, to the temple. Uh, now Ezekiel was probably carried away in one of the earlier, either the first or second uh, captivities uh, that took place in, I think, first one was 606 B.C., second one was 596 B.C., and what he's going to do is he's going to get a tour of the temple. So he's going to see what's going on at the temple. Now, we know that God has started to judge Judah. God is taking away things. People have been carried off into captivity. The king is essentially uh, a vassal. He's just, uh, you know, sort of a figurehead ruler now because the country's under the control. The kingdom of Judah is under the control of the Babylonians. So he's brought to the temple area. And what's interesting is that he's taken during this um, process uh, further and further into the temple. He said, Furthermore unto me, son of man, seest thou what they do, do, even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see still greater abominations. And what you'll find as you go through Ezekiel chapter 8 is uh, he's brought, he's told to dig through the wall and to enter into the temple precinct. And what you find is that as he is taken further and further into the temple, 
the abominations, the the spiritual adultery, the the false teaching, the apostasy that he sees, it gets worse and worse. And he said unto me, verse 9, Ezekiel chapter 8, Go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed on the wall about him. They were told, don't make any graven images. But here he is going into the house of the Lord, and there are what? There are idols and there are drawings and images on the walls in clear violation of what they were told not to do in the Ten Commandments. And he said unto me, go in. And behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw in every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see, hast thou seen the, what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, the Lord seeth, well, the Lord can't see this. The Lord has forsaken the earth. He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. So then he's brought to the door of the Lord's house, which was towards the north, and behold, there sat the woman weeping for Tammuz, a false god. Then he said to me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch of the altar were about five and twenty men, twenty-five men, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east, and they worshipped the sun towards the east. This is how bad the apostasy and the spiritual adultery had gotten, that men in the temple precinct were turning their back on the temple and bowing and worshipping the sun. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. They have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I also deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare. Neither will I have pity. And though the the cry in mine ears uh, with a loud voice, I will not hear them. In other words, they've reached a point where they've gone too far. And so this is a picture of what happened, and you can see what happened to Aholibah in the story in Ezekiel chapter 23. She's eventually judged by the Lord. Now, we've had, um, there are example after example of uh, false teaching that we could give, and I need to skip through some of this, but uh, back in the 1920s, there was a very famous sermon, May 21st, 1922, uh, that was preached by a guy named Henry F- Emerson Fosdick at uh, Riverside Church in um, in New York City. And the purpose of the thing was to essentially uh, dis- discredit what he called the fundamentalists, the people who actually believe things like the Bible was inerrant, the uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They believed in the virgin birth. Uh, they believed that the atonement, that you were saved by, by grace through faith and the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so what, what Fosdick did was he, he sat there and he, um, he, he, he went and he attacked what the church said. There, the, the examples of apostasy in the church today are 
uh, just tremendous. I've heard this phrase repeated a lot. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, the, the last chapter that Paul wrote before he was executed, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after the, their own lust shall they heap unto this, themselves teachers having itching ears. Uh, one of the dangers that can happen to people in the church is they will go listen to people that tell them what they want to hear. Uh, you hear this phrase a lot that's bandied about by people called, they say, chew the meat and spit out the bones. Now, I will say that, and, and this is usually uh, the, the defense given by a false teacher or somebody who wants to defend a false teacher. Yeah, I know what they say isn't quite true. So just chew the meat and spit out the bones. One of my favorite shows on television is Chopped, you know, where they take you on on the Food Network and they give you these crazy ingredients and they try to make you try to make something edible out of it. Every now and then they'll have a, a, a whole fish there. And if a chef ever, um, one of the com- competitors, ever leaves bones in the meat, they are almost always chopped. And it just it stuns me that people would say, chew the meat and spit out the bones when it comes to something as important as as teaching truth or teaching a mixture of truth and error. And we know that Jesus found the the church at Laodicea, which was a mixture of hot and cold. It was lukewarm. Uh, that was the church that he essentially vomited out of his mouth. And it's a stunning warning, and it's just it's it's troubling to me that in the church today that so much of this stuff is acceptable. Um, there are many, many examples. There's a mysticism that's coming into the church. And the examples of this, uh, you know, for example, I, I know a church, let's put a labyrinth in. It's a, it's really sort of a old new age thing. Uh, it's not really, it's not biblical. Jesus gave us admonitions. Don't pray as the pagans. We should avoid that type of thing. And so, as with Judah, Judah was told, I'm going to judge you. The church today has allowed so much to come into it that's not true. They've allowed this mixture to come in that I think it's about time God's going to judge the church, particularly the church in America, which is really, but it's really worldwide, that have allowed all sorts of false teaching to come in. Uh, they've gotten away from the truth of the Word of God. Things have been watered down. They've been made um, very palatable. I did a te- I did a conference up in Vancouver. You can probably find it online someplace uh, with a, a Morial Ministries, and my teaching was I called it the Vegangelicals. The Vegangelicals being people that have no meat and no milk. And what they teach is just this watered down thing. But there is hope. So what happened was his judgment was coming in Ezekiel chapter nine. Uh, he cried also in my ears with a loud voice saying, cause them that have charge over the city to draw near even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. So at the end, God brings these people to execute judgment in Judah. It's a picture, I think, of what's coming for the church. And it says, And behold, six men came out from the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man had a slaughter weapon 
not you know not just something to tap people on the shoulder, a slaughter weapon in his hand, and one among them was clothed with linen and with a writer's inkhorn by his side, and they stood and went in and they stood beside the brazen altar, and the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. So we have the people with the slaughter weapons, and we have one man with a a writing instrument, essentially. And the Lord said unto him, said unto him, Go through the midst of the city to the person with the writing instrument, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And there's a tremendous teaching, I think, buried in the text here. The New American Standard says, put a mark on all the people that see what's going on, and they sigh and they groan. It bothers them. And so if you see these things that are going on in the church today, and it bothers you, and you groan at it, that's a very good sign. That's, I think, a good indicator that you may be faithful. But to the others, he said, in my hearing, go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Um, and John, just to let you know, we got about three minutes before okay. we end of the show. I'm just about done. What you'll find is that the mark at the time that Ezekiel wrote, and you can find this in the text, was essentially it looked like a cross. And so the people that were spared were people that had the mark, if you will, of the cross on them. Now, back in 2004, they had an earthquake in the East Indian Ocean. And when that earthquake took place, of course, there were tidal waves. There were hundreds of thousands of people killed that day, Boxing Day 2004. What happened in Thailand was that as people were filming this, uh, the water drained out of the bay. And people were walking around saying, look, we can see the coral. Isn't this pretty? Isn't this wonderful? But what they didn't see was on the horizon, and eventually they saw it, was this white cap that was approaching them. It was a tsunami. I think it's a perfect picture, I think, of what's getting ready to come on the earth that um, I think with the crazy things that we see going on, we've talked about, you've talked about them tonight, you talk about them every night, this God's judgment is coming like a tsunami. And people are walking around looking at the pretty coral. But here comes the wave of God's judgment. And the people that are spared, and you can see it in the video here, there are people... Eventually they, some of the locals figure it out because they knew, they know what it, what it is and they start yelling tsunami. And hundreds of people, people that you see here walking around were certainly killed when that wave of judgment washed over that bay. And I think it's a picture of what's coming for the church. But the people that will be spared are the ones that are faithful to the word of God, faithful to the teaching of the word of God, and who have essentially the mark that Ezekiel talked about that they believe in the truth that Jesus died on the cross to save us for our sins and they remain faithful to that to the end that's the way to escape the coming judgment and I think there's no doubt that we live at that time where that judgment is coming on the earth and so I think uh, we need to heed some of the teaching of the Old Testament uh, and the teachings of the Bible so that's what I have 
But what a fantastic presentation. Uh, John Haller, our guest, his website, fbchapel.com, and subscribe to his YouTube channel. Uh, John, I wish we had more time to discuss this. We'll have to bring you back yeah. on, but that was an awesome presentation Before, sure. and very okay. timely. And thank you so much. You have a great evening. Thanks. God bless. That'll do it for us tonight. We will be back tomorrow. John, thanks for sitting in with us today. It was a, a great show, and we'll be back here doing it all again, all over again tomorrow. God bless everybody. Have a great evening. Good night.